やっと見つけた新しい朝は月日が邪魔をする向かう先は次じゃなくて次ばかり追いかけた Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff this week on the show. It is the fourth episode in our ongoing Full Metal Alchemist series where we are reviewing the second half of Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood, the second anime,、uh, more faithfully based on the manga by Hiromu Arakawa. We are finishing talking about this particular anime, and it is a long topic. We've already recorded it, it's three and a half hours, so we're going to keep this pretty brief because we got, we got to go do shit, Sean. Yes, and, and if we did a long weekly stuff segment, this would be like a five hour podcast. Yes, it would. So we're not going to do a long segment.、Uh, Sean, what do you think of the Mario movie trailer? That's the only thing people are talking about now. I've got news for you, Jonathan. They're making a children's film, and it has Mario in it. That's pretty much it. I, I do think it's, you know,、uh, I, I will say it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. Jack Black is doing an actual character voice.、Mm -hmm. Some other people,、uh, Keegan Michael Key as Toad, is doing an actual character voice. Chris Pratt is just being Chris Pratt, and that's stupid. But we knew that was going to be stupid. The best part of the whole thing, because I did watch the like five minute thing they did to build up to their teaser trailer, which I was so bummed out that it was just a teaser trailer, because、uh, everyone was making such a big fucking deal of this thing on the internet. Um, that was like, oh, I guess they're doing a full trailer. And then it was like a 30 second thing. It was mostly Bowser. It was like, okay, this is just a children's movie. There's nothing, there's nothing of, of worth to be gleaned from that trailer other than Chris Pratt doesn't seem to be trying. He's not trying to do a Mario voice.、Um, but the best part was the interview thing with Chris Pratt of him just, not really the interview, him just talking into his webcam for like 30 seconds and him having this hilarious thing where he says, it's like, I remember being in the arcade stomping on the. Koopas, and then I saw someone do a tweet that asked, like, why, why does Chris Pratt say Koopas like it's a racial epithet? And it's very true. It's like, if you haven't seen him say it, it's like, Jesus, dude, you got some issues, man. Uh, it's your, and I hope he brings that, if he brings that kind of edge to the role of Mario and makes Mario a Mushroom Kingdom racist, um, I think maybe there could be some more meat in this film, but I suspect that we're not gonna quite, you know, dive into that territory. Have you seen the、uh, edit I made that put Charles Martinet back in it that is now,、yes. I think, the most watched video on our YouTube channel? Yes, I, I did see that.、Um, to, you know, on the topic of racism, it did make me realize, like, yeah, maybe it would be a little racist if they went for that kind of voice for a whole children's film. It would maybe... Yeah, but against Italians, you know. Yeah. I'm kidding. Fair, fair point. Fuck Italians. What did, what did they ever do for the world? What did they ever give us? Well, I think that's a good place to transition into our topic <laughs> on Full Metal Alchemist.、Uh, I'm going to go get a pizza. Me too. Full Metal Alchemist. Full Metal Alchemist. Hello and welcome to Japanimation Station, an anime podcast brought to you by the folks at the Weekly Stuff Podcast. I am Sean Chapman. And I'm Jonathan Lack. 
and we are here once again to dive into the wild and wacky world of anime. This week on the show, we are covering the second half of Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood, also known as uh, Hagane no Denkin Jujutsu Full Metal Alchemist in Japan. Uh, we have already covered the first half of the show on the previous episode, and now we're going all the way to the end, covering the Briggs story arc uh, up in the north, and then the final story arc uh, at the end of the show. Yes, so episode one, we covered the first 32 episodes. This is episodes 33 through 64, the northern wall of Briggs, all the way to the final episode, which is appropriately called Journey's End, which is also the name of the final chapter of the manga. So yeah, um, and here's the thing. I would say I'm significantly more positive on the second half of Brotherhood than I am on the first. Yes. Even even though I think there are stretches of the manga here where I would say my main criticisms of the manga are, I think Brotherhood comes into its own as an anime in the second half, and its best parts are where your, the manga is maybe the messiest just because the show's strengths are so suited to what the manga is doing, and I think they slow the fuck down enough to really tell the story, which I think was a problem in the first half of Brotherhood. And I, man, I wound up by the end all over again. I This is like my fourth time through this anime. I just reread the manga and I was, I was just like literally just like last month reread the manga. And then I'm getting to these final episodes and I'm like, God damn, this is so good. So yeah, Brotherhood goes out on a high note for sure. Yeah, I definitely agree that the second half is quite a bit better. I imagine I'm probably not as positive on it as um, you are, but that's, you know, hey, you, you're, the, you're the Full Metal Alchemist man. Because yes. um, I do think that there are things about the second half of the series, particularly it's the last story arc, um, that I had problems with in the manga. I think those problems still exist. Some of them are improved. Um, some of them aren't. But yes, it is It is like a notably better show in the second half. Uh, that it is, and it's almost kind of like a different show in some ways. A lot of the, like, the, the style of pacing is completely different. It's a much yes. more conventional uh, sort of shonen manga adaptation in the second half because it is not trying to sort of it doesn't change much um, at all in the second half compared to in the first half it frequently they would change or reorder events and restructure things in order to fit things into very tight episodes this is a much more sort of standard pace like a much more leisurely comfortable pace for this kind of show the aesthetics of the show i think particularly the briggs arc get a lot better um i think like for me the briggs arc is the strongest like sustained stretch of the anime uh, there's some really impressive stuff in the last arc, but the last arc of Full Metal Alchemist is also quite messy. So the Briggs arc is fantastic. The last arc is very up and down, but when it is up, it is very up. And I think the anime makes some pretty notable improvements in some key areas in the the home stretch of the series that makes me like the ending of Full Metal Alchemist quite a bit more in Brotherhood than honestly I did in the manga. Interesting. So I'm I'm curious to to talk about all of that, um, and I will generally agree. I mean, the aesthetics in the Briggs arc are definitely the best in the series because the sort of weird chalky thing they do with backgrounds mm -hmm. works phenomenally for a wintry, snowy area. Um, yes, like almost like they reverse engineered the show from the Briggs stuff, like to to that extent. Um, but no, I, I I generally agree with a lot of that, and I think you know I also ran the numbers. It's a really uneven adaptation in terms of what it adapts where, because we just split the series down the middle for these two podcasts. But those first 32 episodes are covering 16 full volumes of the manga, mm -hmm. and then the last 32 are covering only 11. And that's a big difference. I did the average out, and that's about 100 pages per episode in the first half, and it's down to about 65 
in the second half, which is a very normal rate for manga adaptation. Yes. Um, that would be about a chapter and a half given the length of Full Metal Alchemist chapters. And that's totally normal for like a monthly manga with this kind of, you know, length. The first half is much more aberrant in terms of the how fast they're adapting something. The second half, I mean, frankly, once you get into the Promise Day stuff, it feels like a pretty normal shonen anime, including having mm -hmm. like some ups and downs. Um, yeah. But like the pace is much more consistent. Yes, like almost in a way that there are some points in the Promise Day section where I, I kind of missed the the weirder first half of the show where they were like, <laughs> yeah, let's get crazy and like, let's just cut this shit. Let's move this over here. Let's compress it down because that last arc needs some shit cut and needs some stuff compressed. Um, I almost wish that they went a little bit further with the last arc, but particularly for the Briggs section, that is where it feels like, okay, yeah, no, this is the, this is, this is a shonen anime is what it very much becomes in the second half of the, of the series. Um, and, and it's interesting to see a show, like make that adjustment and evolve over the course of it. Cause for people, um, to kind of recap a little bit of what we talked about in the beginning of the last episode in terms of the production stuff, remember that this show was originally going to be 52 episodes in length. Um, and then during production, early in production, it became clear that Arakawa was going to go longer on the manga than she had anticipated. Um, so they tacked on another additional core to get it to a full 64 episodes to be a very rare five core show, um, which is one of the reasons why it gets to have, I think, the leisurely pace that it does have in this home stretch. Uh, you could imagine like another alternate reality version of Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood that did not get that additional 12 episodes and was paced the same way as that for throughout the whole show because it would have had to do the same things in the second half as it did in the first in order to fit um what it does um but that does mean that like it, it they get like this extra breathing room in the second half um and and it is it, it is that second half right because it does split like directly down the middle like we did where that kind of their production blocks line up with those cores and so this is where they get that breathing room and they know they have that breathing room and they're designing the show with that breathing room. So it is very much, I think it is a very clear night and day difference. As soon as you get past episode 32, the pacing of the show like very starkly changes because it's clear that they have, they know what that plan is. Even if they don't actually know how the manga is going to end yet, they, they <laughs> know like the target of where it's going to end much more clearly um, it's only when you start getting right down to the wire that they are working off of like unfinished versions of chapters in order to make their anime episodes, which will be interesting to talk about some of the changes that happen at the end that I, for some characters that I wonder if, if like where that comes from, if that comes from this sort of like, you know, partially done rough draft or something of equivalent manga chapters, um, because the very, very ending is the most different it gets from the manga in this whole stretch, not dramatically different but like notably different compared to the rest of the second half, which is very, very strictly faithful to what the manga is doing. Yes, I think that's a good overall description. And I'm really curious to jump into the Promise Day stuff because I think this is going to be maybe the most interesting to talk about, but we should obviously do our due diligence with the first set of episodes here. Roughly 33 through 44-ish or 45 is all the stuff leading up to the Promise Day, and then it starts right after that. So this is the Northern Wall of Briggs stuff. This is also one of my favorite stretches of the manga, I will say. I think mm -hmm. 
it is uh there's an episode called revving at full throttle but i do think arakawa is revving at full throttle through the brig stuff because the previous arc where we really got into the sort of like 70s paranoid conspiracy thing just put such a good net around the characters and then the briggs arc is where they're having to work within those confines and so you have mustang doing all of his spy stuff you have ed and al trying to navigate through all these new people they're meeting some of whom uh, they don't know how to trust their loyalties. I think the new characters who come in, particularly General Major Armstrong and um, oh, the guy voiced by Kazuya Nakai. I'm forgetting his name right now. Um, uh, Miles. Miles. Miles is great. Um, you have uh, uh, um, Kimberly as sort of our main villain for this stretch of episodes. And we're up north in a very new environment with all the snow and it looks sick. Uh, great set of episodes. Also very good in the manga. Yeah, it's very good in the manga, but I, this is where, uh, like, I just think this is the strongest sustained stretch of the anime. Like, the, I, like, it had that kind of, like, classic shonen anime feel to it of where I felt like I was watching episodes like I was, you know, like, popping popcorn in my mouth or something, right? It's just like, it just <laughs> yes. goes so fast. The pacing is completely on point. The plot turns are really exciting. And yeah, it's just, there's such, like, an injection of fresh... Um, energy into the show because it's it's this clear shift into a new phase of the plot where now like it is fully on board of like scar in ed and al and that stuff gets to come to a head and then they get to be all on the same team uh you know olivia armstrong is a really fun interesting charismatic character and there's like a good sort of change with i think your relationship with the military becomes more dynamic at this point in the show um, and then there's just some really great fights, you know, and it, and it culminates in a really big moment that I wish, like, had more impact in the last section of the show, but where uh, Ed is impaled on that, like, big piece of rebar. Like, there's just this sense of, like, energy and change and dynamism to this part of the plot that's really fun. And then the anime, I think, just really gets to sink its teeth into that stuff because it's got the the space to play it all incredibly well and so it just allows all those moments to breathe you have the fight with sloth which i think is incredibly fun and plays off the dynamics of the characters really well yeah so this whole stretch is is phenomenal and, it, and watching it i just remember feeling like uh for, as an anime it was it felt like the show really came into its own in that whole section i think it's very true i think you know part of having to focus less energy on compressing and contorting the story to fit into episodes is that they have more space to be playful with the animation, let moments breathe. I think there's a lot of just slower scenes that feel more like mm -hmm. what I enjoy from the manga, but also I just think works better as an anime here where, you know, you let kind of the tension play, which makes scenes like the fight with Sloth, which is one of the most creative fights in the series, really build because it's a big bombastic moment, you know, or the stuff that happens once you get into the sort of snowy mining town where they have the big confrontation with Kimberly and Scar, um, all of that sort of stuff. But they're also getting to like, just the style of the show gets so stylish at this point, like all so the style gets stylish. I apologize for that, but it does in so much as this second half, they do it a little bit in the first half of the show, but they very memorably start doing, they pull the end credits song up into the episode mm -hmm. at the end. And they do that, uh, especially with the fourth and fifth cores, but even a little bit with Sunaida Tay. They do it a little bit in the second core, particularly the moment where Ed comes back through the door and tells Al's body he's coming back. That we, we, I don't know if we highlighted that moment, but that's a phenomenal moment in the anime. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just, there's stuff like that where I feel like, okay, they're having fun with this. 
And I don't know if I felt... There are really good stretches in the first half of the show. There are things like... Particularly, I think the highlight is probably Mustang Killing Lust in terms of just mm-hmm. an overall production. But there is a consistency in the second half where I feel like, okay, the people making this are having fun with the material in a way I don't know if I would say about the more workman-like first set of episodes. Yeah, and it's it's not as if it ever becomes like a very sort of like creative adaptation it's still it's still not to me like anywhere near the level of something like the kimetsu no yaiba adaptation of like what that adds to the source material but yeah but it just feels much more comfortable where it is um and yeah there's a part of me that that occasionally missed having the like you know the thing in the first half of the show where you get a bunch of episodes that were kind of okay but every once in a while you get this like oh my god look how cool this episode like how well they built this together and how smart the adaptation is and that was very cool in the first half when you would get it but it meant that the quality of the show was like incredibly inconsistent in the first half um and whereas here it has that much more sort of normal pacing of a shonen show where like if you tried to if you asked me to try to describe to you where episodes began and end from memory i would not be able to tell you this is it does not it's not a show where it's like oh this is that episode where this plot happens and the way you have the like oh this is the episode that where they do all the rush valley stuff um in the first half it's like this is the rush valley episode that they designed to contain the multiple different plot lines that happen in the manga that effect is completely lost and you, you can kind of miss it um but the overall effect on the show by going for a more standard sort of seamless fluid pacing um and just having episodes kind of blend together not to say that they don't have structure they do but the structure is not very notable or it's not very dominant in how you're engaging with the show and so you just move immediately to the next episode without thinking about it um and that's what this genre is designed to do like it's it's a very heavily serialized style of storytelling and that's true of where it is in the manga at this point so it fits really comfortably with the anime and it and it makes it a just more engaging show to watch. Yeah. And, you know, talking about it as an adaptation, I think there's definitely for me a little bit of going back to Brotherhood in a world where we've had Kimetsu no Yaiba and Jujutsu Kaisen and Name Your Modern sort of shonen anime. It suffers a little bit, but that's not Brotherhood's fault. Like there's, a, there's mm-hmm. just, you know, those shows got to do 12 to 26 episode seasons where they really get to drill down and make this thing. This is a single rush of 64 episodes, you know, made in a blitz um, so it is inherently just a slightly different thing. I'm not saying it's a completely unfair comparison because I do like imagining the UFO table version of Full Metal Alchemist would be very enticing to me. Um, but I will say, I think the second half of this is 100% respectable as a like, it's a very good, I don't feel like it needs a remake or something, you know, no, um, no. at any point. Um, it's done very, very well. Yeah, so, and let's talk about just when we get up to Briggs, it's one of the biggest pieces of world building and world expansion in the series. And I, I guess one thing I don't know if we even highlighted enough in the first episode we did, Sean, is just Arakawa's imagination is really big. I think it's something that, like, you know, makes many shonen manga and anime stand out is how sort of creative is the world building. And I think there's a reason Full Metal Alchemist is just one of the best known examples because it just does have a really creative, cool world that it's built. And I think when you get to Briggs and you're seeing, you know, okay, how does this world operate up north? How do we rethink things we've seen so far like Automail up north? And then also what does a military institution that is very detached from military high command, how does it move who is Olivier Armstrong, who is very different than any character we've met so far? 
Um, you know, I just really love that. And of course, it mirrors Ed and Al's growth here of they're going into much more uncharted territory. And that kind of expansion just makes this such a fun stretch of the series. Yeah, and it just, yeah, it gets you this sense of like the larger world outside of where you've been because you've been stuck in the same like two or three locations for most of the series at this point. You've either been in the east, you've been in central, or you have the brief like detour down more towards the south section with like Rush Valley, but you're not there for very long. Um, and so it's, it is one of those things where it's just a very nice change of pace. Um, you're where the whole aesthetics of the show change, the kind of some of the pacing and the structure, the, there's new characters, um, that are introduced, which is the first time we've gotten like a good injection of new characters in a while. Um, yes. And it just, it's, it is just, it feels like it breathes a whole new life into the show, which is very appropriate because we are, you know, past that midpoint where now Ed and Al understand the, the the real scope of what is happening here, right? They've met Father. They know what the plan is, generally speaking, of what's going on. They know that this entire country has been designed purely to create a giant uh, circle in order to perform some sort of ritual um, and that everybody is expendable in that uh, ritual and that they are part of, like, the larger military, like, political, sociological machine that makes all that stuff work. And they kind of are powerless within that structure. They need to find a way to to break out of that and, like, fight back. And so it's a really interesting second half of where they're kind of lost trying to find some path forward um, and going up into these snowy mountains in the north, this, like, very brutal environment um, and meeting some characters that are thriving in that environment. It's it's a very engaging, I think, kind of plot structure to move us towards in the second half where the characters need to find themselves and like regroup and gather together and find some kind of like hope or action plan to to engage with to bring us to the end of the show. Yeah, absolutely. Do you want to talk about some of the characters we meet here um, and their voice actors and whatnot? Because this is the biggest injection of new talent we have into the series at this point. Yes, I mean, the, the obviously the really big one here is Olivia Armstrong, uh, played by Yoko uh, Somi, who is has not been in, like, a huge amount of stuff. I'm not, like, super familiar with a lot of her other roles, um, for, because there's a lot of shows that I haven't really seen. Um, but Olivia Armstrong is, like, clearly, when you if you look at her, like, CV or whatever, like, that is, like, her really, really big, super popular role, and it's phenomenal. You know, she is a yeah. character that jumps off the page immediately. She's so compelling. Um, like, I think there's some stuff to maybe talk about with the politics of Full Metal Alchemist here and, like, its relationship to, like, the military that I think it doesn't fully grapple with. I think it fetishizes Olivia Armstrong a bit too much because she is still very fascisty, but the show doesn't want to engage with that at all. Um, but she, if you can put aside some of that, like, the show's, I think, uncomfortable relationship with the military where it both wants to kind of deconstruct it and fetishize it at the same time, um, she is a very, like compelling character like she draws your attention so much and particularly in this section where she gets to kind of totally own everything and seeing her kind of like have to learn and process everything that ed and al have learned in this very short period of time is really uh interesting yeah i think there's a there's a lot to talk about here i mean one of the things that i think is always funny coming from my perspective which i think is a lot of western fans perspective of we saw the 2003 show first and uh -huh. so i think in our head you know alex louis armstrong is the big like colorful side military character he she is a much bigger character in the manga and yes. in brother and in brotherhood especially because a lot of alex's stuff in the first half is cut down 
Um, she is the main Armstrong character in the series. Mm-hmm. He is very much like the person who kind of leads you to her. And then she's one of the main characters in the second half. Um, and yeah, she's great. Yoko Somi, wonderful, wonderful performance. Even, yeah, I have not heard her. I was looking through her CV. I haven't seen a lot of other stuff she's done, but this is perfect. It's exactly kind of how you would hear her on the page, which is like a, you know, deep authoritative voice. Um, and yeah, I think... You know, one of the things I kind of wish having seen, and and I should say, this is like, if you add up manga readings and anime watchings, this is like my sixth or seventh time through this story. So there's a lot of just things that I'm going to nitpick that like are there because I've seen it a lot. And I think Mm -hmm. one of the things I realized this time is I feel like there should be a clearer parallel between Armstrong and Mustang in some way in the second half here, because she's kind of built the thing Mustang wants which is that she has a very loyal group of soldiers. She hasn't necessarily built a cult of personality. She's very clear about, like, you know, they are, they're obeying her, but they're also not supposed to, like, abandon everything for her. She says that over and over again, you know? Um, and she's kind of built the thing Mustang when Mustang says, you know, we're all going to protect the person under us, blah, blah, blah. She's actually kind of achieved that at scale. And then I think you have to, uh, you know talk about is it you know where where in the vein of politics is that should should that mean that she gets what mustang wants or does it mean that mustang should reconsider what he wants blah 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 but like i've always been or not always but on this viewing i realized i wish they came into conflict a little more directly because there's a really she's like mustang 10 years later in an interesting way to me yeah, I, I mean, I think it's like, you know, we might as well talk about it now since we're here with some of the stuff of that. I think the show, like, fundamentally, this is true of the manga. This is not really a Brotherhood thing. Brotherhood just inherits this problem from its adaptation. I just don't think it knows what to do with the concept of Amistris and the military and all of that past father, right? Like, it just, like, it has this idea of leading us up to, oh, we sort of all band together as friends and our power of friendship and camaraderie and 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 some sort of like vague sense of wanting to do the right thing um means that we can all come together and overthrow father and then there's some vague gestures towards and we'll help bring the ishfal people back to their holy land um and and you know general graman takes over and i guess he'll be better probably i mean he's not going to be you know he's not going to try to use everybody's soul to try to become god obviously but there's no sense of like what are the politics anymore like does olivia armstrong have an ideology of anything beyond like i defend the north um you know like there's there's i think a lack of vision there with the military characters and i just don't think it feels like adekawa had an idea for what are they in the world after father is gone and because there's no idea there, both Arm, both Mustang and Olivia Armstrong get completely lost in the shuffle in, in the ending section of the show because they have nowhere to go. There's no real idea for how these characters conclude their story arc because there's no vision for what are they after all of this stuff. Brotherhood, when we'll get to this when we get there, definitely improves Mustang's story yes. at the end. Um, and I think on a micro level points him in the right direction. On the macro level, I think it still has this problem. And this is actually one place where I just do flat out think the 2003 show is better um, in that it gives more thought to this. I think it is more open about the idea that this is the country, not just one bad actor at the heart of it who has to be taken out. 
Um, you know, this is a lot of what, like, this is why I really like that last conversation that Mustang and Ed have in the O3 show is kind of about that. Um, in the epilogue of the O3 show, they're very clear to say that when the Fuhrer is gone, the Democratic Assembly comes back into existence. I, for whatever reason, thought that was a detail in the manga and Brotherhood. It's not. Um, if something like that, that could happen. It just doesn't on screen. Um, and so what shape the government takes just is not a question this show answers. And, you know, it's not the death knell of it for me. It is a shonen, you know, show for, you know, kids and teens at the end of the day. But there is definitely a gap because the show and the manga reach for certain political depths that then I, those are checks they it can't quite cash. Yeah, I think it, I think this is like true. This we're getting a little bit more into stuff that's really at the end, but I think it's worth saying because I think it's very true of a lot of the show overall. And in the second half, is that Full Metal Alchemist runs into this problem of where it simultaneously wants to be your like optimistic, wide-eyed shonen series that in in the vein of a Naruto and a One Piece and a Kimetsu Yaiba, Dragon Ball, blah, 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 on and on and so on, right? It wants to be one of those and have its sort of wide-eyed optimism and hope. And it wants to have a theme at the end that boils down kind of to, like, friendship wins the day. Like, it wants to have that. Um, and it does do that. But it also aspires to having these other, like, political and sociological themes and it doesn't know, I think, how to really marry those. And it's not to say that those things can't be married, but Fullmetal Alchemist doesn't know how to do it. And so it's like it runs into problems that most other shows like, generally speaking, like Fullmetal Alchemist don't have this issue because they're not trying to do themes in a political or sociological dimension. All of their themes are just like emotional themes. They're all about like friendship wins the day and it's about hard work and never giving up. And like, and that's just the, the, the sphere that those shows operate in 95% of the time. Whereas with Full Metal Alchemist, it is maybe like, for certain sections, it feels like it's maybe 30% the friendship, wide-eyed optimism shown in classic hard work, enthusiasm, all that. And something like 70%, it's about the political, like sociological stuff going on out there. Um, but it does not know at all in any way, shape, or form how to resolve that political sociological stuff. And that's the problems I think it runs into in the second half. Yeah, and and we'll get into that more. I you know I will say this is not something I ever noticed in this show watching it as a kid. Uh, this is something sure. that was like yeah. this viewing and this reading. This is not something I would have been cognizant of. So if you're listening to this and you haven't watched the show in a while and you're going, oh, these fucking crazy woke bastards talking about the politics, it's it's not that we're trying to read that into everything. It's that we're older than the like target audience for the show and are thinking about it. Um, and I'm not saying the show has no responsibility to that because its target audience is younger. I think it has that responsibility because it brings up the themes. That's why we're talking yeah. about it, you know. And you know, it's it's not like they completely ignore the idea of of Ishval at the end here, particularly Brotherhood. But there isn't a sense of like what the durable political structure of this society is, so that Ishval never happens again. I guess is how I would phrase it. Well, it, it resolves that stuff with dialogue, that's, you know, that's for yeah. characters that were in scenes that don't have any Ishval characters in them for most of it. I mean, you've got the one with Scar and, and Miles, but right. the, the main thing is a scene with Mustang and Dr. Marco, which is better in Brotherhood. Um, but it, it is, it, it's like the show isn't about those things at the end, right? Sure. It, yeah. that's, those are things that get resolved like secondhand, more or less. Um, and, it, and at the end, it wants to be about ed and al and that stuff and the the friendship and getting our bodies back and and believing in each other and believing in ourselves and all that kind of stuff um but 
it's like that's not to me as someone who engaged this for the first time as a 29 year old man right that is my perspective coming into it like that's the stuff that's not nearly as interesting to me um and so it becomes very disappointing for me and, and this is true this is like my main criticism of the manga as well um so this, again this is not really a brotherhood thing um specifically that that is the thing that like I kind of came out very disappointed with Full Metal Alchemist ultimately. Even if I think it's very good, it will get into the very good stuff. It has these problems and it starts cropping up more and more as we get through the second half of the series. There's definitely, an, and this will be a theme as we get into it, I, I don't know if Arakawa ever quite knows where Ed and Al as our show, as shonen heroes in a fairly traditional shonen mold, although maybe with more sort of darkness in their backstory... Um, how they kind of fit into the larger societal political plots that are more the domain of characters they meet than things mm -hmm. they themselves take on, which makes sense. They didn't do Ishval, so they don't have the same kind of connection to it as Mustang or Scar, right? Um, but I just, uh, yeah, I mean, well, maybe we should table this and get back to talking about the Northern stuff because this is a big conversation. Yes. Well, one place where the, it does intersect with the Northern stuff to kind of segue us is another character we meet is Miles, um, played by Kasi Nakai, who is the um, sort of, I guess, like half Amestrian, half uh, Ishfal guy who is like a member of the military. And this is where I do think there's like, there's a particular like kind of naivete, I think, a little bit with how it treats this character in some of his like ideology about trying to like work within the inside and we're gonna i'm gonna change them by being like it's very respectability politics yes um in, in like an american political context it's like you just gotta you know you just gotta you know be good hard standing up like or upstanding hardworking member and of a mistress if you like i get to represent you know this is like what the ishval people can be at their best and we'll change them from the inside um and there's just a scene with him that i was really rolling my eyes super hard because i'd kind of forgotten it's it's like word for word just from the manga as well because i looked it up again just to check um but when he's talking about all that stuff i was like kind of okay yeah okay yes that's i think it doesn't really grapple with the reality of one like the full scope of what happened to the ishval people um and it like also doesn't really grapple with the nature of like this larger political system oppressing this minority group that's like dude you're not going to change anything for anybody just because like you're the nice one um that's not going to fix any problems at all it's yeah i think it's unfortunate i think it is the most naive single piece of writing in the series um is the stuff around miles in that moment because the idea of the character is interesting in part because he disguises his identity he comes mm -hmm. into the series as our Almost, you could say, our Sharaz novel with his fucking eyes covered because uh -huh. he doesn't want anyone to see his eye color because it's a significant thing that people, his enemies, would know. And I think there's a different version of this where Arm... Like, the idea is that Olivier Mira Armstrong does not care if he is Ishvalan. She just wants good, strong people and she values... She's built like an actual meritocracy, goddammit, right? Mm -hmm. And... If her goal was, and I'm going to turn the whole country into this, well, there you go. Maybe that's the kind of thing you were talking about earlier of having an actual goal. Um, and maybe he is there because he believes in that. But it, the explanation does not get that specific. It just gets to what you were saying, which is his whole thing is, you know, I want to be the best person I can and show the Amestrians that they're wrong about Ishvalans. And of course, that's not how bigotry works. 
Um, you know, you could be the best soldier in the world and an Ishvalan, and to a bigot, you would not be as worth as much fundamentally as the worst soldier who is an Amestrian, right? Yeah. Um, and it's like, you know, in this specific context, because they're using things like Holocaust imagery and other kinds of genocidal campaigns, it would be like saying a Jew in post, you know, World War II Germany, if the Nazis had won, going into the military and being like, I'm going to show the Nazis they were wrong about the Jews. Like one, kind of too late. And two, they wouldn't let you into the military. Because they have a, like, like we saw in the, I don't remember if they adapt this in the anime, but in the manga at least, the Fuhrer is very clear he's going to kill them all. And that's his goal. He just wants yeah. to get rid of all the Ishvalans. So the idea that he has to conceal his identity to be in the military, that's interesting. But then they don't go anywhere with that. Yeah, it's it's for it to get like I guess like the most clear specific real world parallel in terms of like this isn't how like you solve racism or whatever um is like to the shock of nobody electing a black president in America did not solve racism, right? It's like it, that's just it's just not how it works. Um and so it's and you know, it's I'm I don't think this is like for me a huge criticism of full metal activist cuz I would not really expect it to <laughs> like be able to, you know, it's just it's it's a thing you see in lots of media all the time. Um and in it's a little bit more rare in anime because anime doesn't deal with like racial themes as often as like a lot of American media does. Um not to say that it shouldn't because there is obviously still um, racial issues currently and historically in Japan. Um, but like, it's just not a very common theme. And so it's I, like, I don't think this is a huge deal, but it is one of those where I really roll my eyes at it uh, as an adult watching this series and being like, yeah, okay, yes, you're the, I will say the one good thing about it, the, the good thing, I think one like thing it does well, and I wish it had some of this framing more in this earlier part is at the end with Miles, he does have this good line uh, when he's talking to Scar at the very end of the series as they get set off on their journey where he says, um, you know, like, will you come with me to go, like, you know, rebuild the church of Ishvala and, like, you know, come with us back to the Holy Land and all this kind of stuff. Um, he has this line that says, like, the death of our culture is the death of our people. And I really like that line because it felt like it yes. was the first time they ever, like, grappled with that the scope of what happened to Ishval is... I don't want to say isn't just killing all the people because obviously that's not a it's just that kind of thing but it is both killing all of the people and it's exterminating the culture and it's one of the problems I had with Miles whole perspective and it feels like a logical inconsistency with what he's doing in the plot um is that like what he's advocating for at this point in in Briggs is effectively an integration thing of like we won't work I'm going to integrate myself and through integrating myself I'm going to like fight bigotry but through that integration that is like a tacit secession of your cultural values and your identity and you're sacrificing some of those things in order to join this military and become one of these people um and it, it felt like it kind of was ignoring that it's more than killing all the people with amistris has destroyed your architecture it's destroyed your art it's like trying to wipe out your language your culture your religion all of those things and then once it has successfully done that and integrated the few people left who have you know some kind of roots to the ishwal people that is when the ishwal people are dead because the what they were and their history has been destroyed and i like that it, it even if it's just in a line of dialogue i you know i wish it was a more fully integrated piece of the plot but to the show's credit, the series credit, because it comes from the scene is in the manga as well. 
Um, it does at least bring some of that stuff in right at the end. And I, I wish it did it earlier. I wish it kind of grappled with that stuff earlier. I wish it was part of more clearly part of Miles's deal. And he had that perspective at the midpoint or that we saw, saw a character growth that let him see that, oh, I can't just integrate myself. I need also to embrace and like engage with um, my history and culture on my Ishvalan side as well. And if I don't, that's one of the ways that they, that the Fuhrer and the Amistress wins. Like something that went deeper into it would have been great, but it does engage with that stuff sometimes. Um, it's just not as much as you would like. Yeah, it's only bad writing if it isn't grappled with. Like it could be very uh -huh. good writing if the point is Miles is naive, right? Uh -huh. Like, you know, you could you could write that well. And actually, I really like all of Miles' scenes with Scar because uh -huh. I think he has a different way of seeing Scar than any of the other characters and Scar then listens to Miles in a different way I think Kazuya Nakai just automatically having a voice as good as him I think elevates Miles off the page a little bit um, adds mm -hmm. some depth to the character but I think those scenes are great but they're usually Miles kind of rubbing off on Scar um, like you know when they have Scar captured in the snowy mining town um, and Scar realizes that there are other surviving Ishvalans who have taken different paths. It doesn't mean Scar immediately like signs up for the Amestrian military. I think he still disagrees with Miles' like specific approach, but he sees a different path there. Um, and I wish it kind of went both ways that like Scar also rubbed off a little bit on Miles. Like, you know, mm -hmm. maybe it wasn't the worst thing in the world to kill all those state alchemists who were genocidal maniacs. Maybe he had yes. a point. You know, not that that was necessarily the right thing to do. The show does not endorse that, and Scar comes to maybe regret that as the uh, not maybe most productive way of dealing with it. But like, hey, man, I ain't got no problem with it. I, you want to, you want to kill the genocidal, fucking crazy I, magic people? Go for it. I don't necessarily have a problem with it either. I don't think it is wrong of the show and of the character to say there are more productive, like, you know, sure. ways to use his power. Again, Scar, kill all the fucking uh, genocidal maniacs he wants. He's, you know... I, it may be draw the line when it comes to the kids. Ed and Al, they didn't do anything to him. But, you know... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But anyway, um, we're getting off track here. But yes, uh, so yeah, you've got those characters. You've got Miles. You've got Buccaneer. Buccaneer's great. Yeah. Buccaneer gets one of the best. He and uh, Old Man Fu together get the best death in the series. It's a fucking amazing... Um, Ryuzaburo Otomo as Buccaneer. Love him. Love his big, crazy uh, um, auto mail, which makes me wish we had more crazy auto mail in the series because I like the mm -hmm. idea of someone just building a chainsaw on their arm. It's pretty cool. It's very uh, Evil Dead, very Army of Darkness. Yes, no, yeah, he's a fun character. Um, and just like all the like random Briggs people, I mean, most of them you don't see a whole lot, but there's lots of colorful little background characters like the Doctor that's there and all that kind of stuff of just a bunch of um you know they feel like there's an alternate like side story manga that exists where they were all as developed as like or you know developed but like you saw them as much and they had as much screen time as like fallman and some of um mustang's guys because that's one of the places where it feels like i guess i think you're right that olivia and roy mustang are kind of paralleled in some ways and she has her own weird posse up there and buccaneer is like her version of hawkeye who's like the real main big character amongst the group but she's got a bunch of other like weirdos there as well that are very uniquely designed and stuff um and i like just seeing that whole kind of crew operate on the wall yes uh this is also where we get uh one of mustang's men i'm forgetting which one his name is but is up there uh oh it's fallman Fallman yeah. is up there uh, and having to do all of the um, dirty work of like getting the icicles off the ceiling, which is a very funny scene he and Ed and Al have together. 
um, because Ed is not tall enough to reach the icicles, which is good. Yeah. And there's, yeah, there's just like a lot of good lived in world building detail there. Like, I wonder how much of that is because like Atakawa is from Hokkaido, which obviously yes. is a very like cold, snowy place. So I've, it, it feed, there's a there's a certain at hominess to Briggs that, you know, I suspect might come from that. And the 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 detail of you got to sweep the all the icicles off or they're going to fall and hit somebody is a really good little detail um, that other shows I think would probably have missed about this kind of setting. It definitely is, I think, just in terms of atmosphere, it feels like the most real place in the whole series. Because mm-hmm. you really get to know, like, Briggs as a fortress. They make such cool use of it for the various things that happen, including the big... I mean, one, it all kicks off with Sloth down in the basement, you know, underground, digging the tunnel. I love that detail, that this is what Sloth has been put to work doing for God knows how many hundreds of years digging mm-hmm. the big Amestrian uh, transmutation circle. And then, of course, the way they kill Sloth is getting on a fucking tank and pushing him out the side of the building and dousing him in oil and having him freeze. There's just there's really cool things that they make use of with all of that. Yeah, let's talk about that whole sequence with Sloth because it happens like pretty immediately and it's it's one of my favorite action sequences. I think it's probably is in the manga specifically. I think it's my probably favorite action sequence i think there's just something about it feels it feels very full metal alchemist because there's not like a lot of fighting you know there's no like crazy martial arts there's not really punches or kicks um it's more of like conceptually what the fuck do you do um against this giant titan monster dude who has showed up that even shooting like he was shrugging off tank shells you know and just walking through it um, and, and Sloth's not even really trying to fight people. He's not. He's just trying to get back to his hole and figure out where he has to go next with his tunnel. Um, and they're trying to figure out how to get rid of him. And there's this incredible drama between Olivia Armstrong trying to deal with this scenario and Ed and Al trying to help, but Ed and Al not being able to say anything because of, um, you know, they, they can't say anything because if they do, uh, Winry will be hurt or killed or something because she's being taken hostage. And them having to try to, Ed having to like, give hints and stuff to Olivia and you have that great line um, where she's, or this great exchange of dialogue between Ed and Olivia, where she's trying to get a sense of like, Hey, answer, just answer my questions as much as you can. Um, And she gives him all these pointed questions. And then she has like, why can't you tell me anything? And he just, and Ed gives her this look and just says, please, like, you just have to guess, like, you just have to figure it out basically is what he says. Um, And it's a great moment. And I like the, I like the dynamic there of these two characters trying to feel each other out, knowing that instinctively they're probably both on the same side, but not entirely sure. Um, and that sort of back and forth there is very tense and very, it's just a great example of kind of character writing. It is. And I think having it pushed to extremis right away with they're fighting a big fucking homunculus, right? Uh-huh. And the homunculus have been these like almost insurmountable villains over the course of the series so far. The one we destroyed was the one that like, well, Greed got destroyed by Father. And then we had Lust destroyed by Mustang at great personal cost, right? Mm -hmm. And then we have this one who, the alchemists don't take him down. Ed and Al help, but they actually don't help with alchemy in this scene. They help with like much more basic stuff. And it is, Olivia has like a well-oiled unit of soldiers who are able to like put their backs into it and get this done through knowledge of their surroundings and what they have on site and what they're able to do. And that just paired with all of the intrigue you were just describing makes for such a great intro to this section of the plot. 
Yeah, and and it's a good conclusion to the fight of them having to... Sh- they pour him in this, like, fuel that freezes at a super low temperature and then knock him out into the snow and watching Sloth slowly freeze. It's fantastic. Um, this is also where we have to talk about a great performance, which is Fumihiko Tachiki, uh, who's in a lot of stuff. He he's voices uh, Sloth, probably best known as Ikari Gendo, uh, Shinji's father from Neon Genesis Evangelion. He's, of course, in, like, fucking everything. He hears the voice all over the place. And I love his sloth. It's not like it's a super nuanced performance. Obviously, sloth asks for a very specific thing. It's mostly saying, oh, mendokse, over and over again. But it's really good. There's yes. something, I think sloth in the manga is a very lovable character because of like the ridiculousness of what he is. And I think there's something about uh, Fumiko Tachiki's performance um, that also is like, obviously he's a he's part of the bad guy team or whatever but you kind of can't help but love sloth for like the weird big dope that he is indeed it's you know i really love how the manga and then this translates to brotherhood plays with the identities of the seven deadly sins of the Mm -hmm. homunculi you know and i love the ones that are pushed to more extremes like greed is obviously the best of and the most developed of them all but you know uh, i also love sloth here it's just he literally just is sloth he is big and lazy and you kind of love him because it's very identifiable you know Mm -hmm. yeah 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 it's especially you know watching this like on the weekends after a long week of work and being i just like i feel you man like i sometimes i feel (laughs) just like walking down the hallway at the school oh oh it's so bothersome oh mendokse oh (laughs) Oh, it's like, like what everyone that's how everyone feels sometimes Indeed. Um, most of us don't have to dig a fucking tunnel around our entire country, though. No. Yeah. It's, it, and for as far as we know, he doesn't even get fucking paid for it, you know? Like, of yeah. all of Father's crimes, you know, this is perhaps the worst, you know? It's not even, like, proper labor compensation. What the fuck's going on here? <laughs> yes, of all of Father's crimes, that is definitely the worst. At it's least pay un- a minimum wage, dude. Jesus Christ. I know. Anyway, um, okay, so you've got all of that. Um, and then I think, you know, you get into the, all the stuff where Kimberly arrives and Kimberly is searching down Scar and he is also, uh, searching down Marco, but then he also winds up getting entangled with the, with the kids here. You also have, I guess before Kimberly gets there, you have General Raven. And the thing that happens to General Raven is one of my favorite things in the entire series of Olivia immediately pegs this guy for what he is like she has Uh a healthy distrust of military high command to begin with she ed al buccaneer do this like plot to get him to talk he talks very fucking easily and then when they are going to they are filling in the hole that sloth left and she shoots him in the head well she stabs him through the like arm shoots him in the head and leaves him there and they cover him in concrete and then she goes back to central and just admits it to wrath to the fuhrer she's the most badass character in the series i don't know what you want to say if that's is it you know she might be a little fashy but it's really cool i understand the appeal in this specific instance (laughs) yeah it is a great like it's a scene that would not be out of place in fucking like goodfellas or the sopranos (laughs) basically you know it's like the most mob hit thing you have ever fucking seen and it's great yeah they're just shooting him him falling in and then she's just like you know make sure you cover whole, up that hole real clean <laughs> she, yes. she like throws her gloves in that's too, my, fa- right? my favorite detail is she pulls oh. off the bloody gloves throws them in and then buccaneer has another pair of gloves at the ready for her yes. which to me implies that she's done this before to some oh, degree there are other yeah. people buried under bricks 
Yeah, she she has definitely yeah the, that that if there's going to be an archaeological dig in like a thousand years that they're going to find a bunch of skeletons like <laughs> under the fucking pyramids or some shit. Um, it's yeah, it's great. It's that, great. That, that that is one of the most fun scenes. Um, and it's true in the manga and the anime pulls it off with a plum. I was, I was that was one of the many scenes I was really looking forward to seeing just because I knew like oh uh, they're gonna it's gonna be so juicy when the anime does it and they they really nailed it. They nailed it. And all, just all of her stuff after that point where she almost has like an espionage role going into military mm-hmm. high command among this. Because this is where we learn it's not just father. There's a whole cabal of military leadership that has been promised immortality. Um, and of course, they're all idiots. Like Olivia is the only yeah. smart one there because she's the only one who is smart enough to know if a big dude with powers like this is promising you immortality, he's lying, obviously. Um, but she is able to just stare wrath the Fuhrer Bradley in the face and like spin this web about that's not even really a lie because it's all based on truth which is like he spilled the beans to me immediately you don't want him in your in your high command and Bradley's like yeah that actually that checks out that makes sense you you get his Mm -hmm. seat it's great (laughs) yeah because it is it is the thing that's fun is that she's only like she's not actually directly lying to him at any point she is just sort of talking around the truth um Yeah, it's really, all that stuff is super well done. Yeah. Okay, but then we have Kimberly who comes up in his fucking white suit and his white top hat and he brings Winry with him because one messy plot point here, I think, is that Ed has had auto mail for a not inconsiderable amount of his life and he literally lives with a family of auto mail mechanics and his like best friend other than Al is an auto mail girl who built his fucking limbs and he has never picked up on the fact that you can't bring automail into cold climates. I feel like there would have been like, I don't know, like a set of literature he was given by Winry at some point. And there should be like a funny flashback to him as like a kid getting his new limbs and Winry like, make sure you read the instructions. And he's like, no. And he throws them away. And then Al has to like chastise him in the present. Because I do think it's a little weird that Ed did not know about the whole frostbite thing. Yeah, because I feel like, wasn't there like a similar th- conversation where obviously he does go to Xerxes, but I feel like there was a conversation about like, you have to be super careful because yes. you're like, if your metal gets super hot, it's going to burn your own skin. And then it's like, it's the exact same, like obviously opposite effect <laughs> up in the north. So yeah, it, it is, you know, it is a weird oversight that it just comes as a huge shock to Ed. It's like, oh, oh, I guess, yeah, okay. I guess I should have figured this out. I guess I should have known um he has to be sort of conveniently dumb for the whole like intro to buccaneer and all that stuff to function i mean it's you know it's it's something that we have noted before it is like it is a trend in full metal alchemist that it will have kind of awkward plot junctions here or there to make to kind of force certain things to happen again the dr marco one is the most incredible of them all um but oh i I think there's a worse one coming up okay Uh, yeah it involves may chang and envy we'll get there yes um yeah but yes I, I think, here's the thing though, my point is, I think you could turn it into a very funny joke if it was just uh-huh. Ed is fucking hot-headed, which is totally, like, true to his character. If, like, Winry had told him this and he wasn't listening or something, I, I don't know, there's a funny flashback with Chibi Ed you could do that would make me laugh very hard. Yes, it, it does feel like a weird oversight. But it's fine. Um, because now you have Winry back in the story to help Ed get his new automail. Um, but then she also becomes fairly proactive here, learning about the whole hostage situation and then starting to leverage that against them. And our main antagonist for this stretch is Solf J. Kimbley, a name worthy of Gundam. Just a great name. Truly. 
Yes. Uh, truly uh, amazing vocal performance. I really, and I have always, since I first saw this show, loved... Oh, who's the actor who plays Kimberly? I'm looking for it here. Uh, Hidoyuki Yoshino. Uh, yes. Alleluia, uh, baptism from yes. uh, Double O. And that's actually kind of funny. I, I recognized him as Alleluia as soon as, like, he came in. Because I hadn't seen it, obviously, when I last saw Brotherhood. But this mm. time I'm like, it's that kind of shit-eating voice that's so perfect. He's so good. Um, and I just love Kimberly. I think he is an amazing villain. I love his, you know, he's got crazy powers. He's evil as shit. But he also wears a white suit and has a certain set of uh, proudly evil principles. He's just a great villain. I love him. Yeah, I, I like him more in the anime for sure. I think the vocal performance makes him work better. I do think this is a character that kind of goes nowhere, though. I think it's like, it just feels like he he does like, you know, a very cool thing in, in terms of like, it's a very dramatic moment when Ed gets impaled. Um, but then it's just sort of like he, you know, obviously he does factor in. It's not that he's completely forgotten, but I feel like that character just sort of fades a little bit into the background. And I don't feel like Adekawa ever really knew in the bigger picture what to do with him. Um, and that's something that I found uh, when I read the manga, I found it disappointing. It, it's equally disappointing in the anime that it feels like that character just kind of fizzles out. That's fair. I think, you know, he clearly like, I think was envisioned for this stretch of the story. And then I think there was probably a issue of planning of like, what is his role after this stretch of the story? Because through this stretch of the story, I think he works like gangbusters. Um, and then, you know, I do like the big kind of final, I really like the final fight with him and, Al, where Al winds up uh, beating him using the Chimera dude who rips his neck off. I mean, that's pretty fucking good. But yes, then it. Yeah, we'll get to that. Out. Like, I have some issues with that fight scene, but yeah, like I think it's it's just a thing of where this is. I think a problem with Full Metal Alchemist in general. It starts to happen here in the second half. This is a show that needs to kill off characters more frequently than it does. Um, yes, and, and that might be partially the Gundam fan in me speaking who needs about. 30 to 50 percent of the cast to be dead by the end of the show for me to like feel anything um but it is a thing where the show kills some notable characters early on um like obviously the big ones being hughes in terms of a good guy character who's like a recurring character who gets killed and then lust who gets killed and then there are almost no character deaths until the very very end when there's like two and it's it's foo and it's buccaneer and obviously you have some of the the villains get killed at the end but all the villains get killed at the ending section and I think if they, like, if Kimberly got offed somewhere or a little bit earlier or something, or there was, or he killed a character, if, like, something more dramatic were to happen, I think it would help the pacing and the structure, and it would make the ending of the show way less cluttered and more focused. But it has, the show ends up with, and the series ends up with this huge cast of characters, about half of which there's really nothing to do with them anymore, because they've served their purpose, but you didn't kill them when you had a chance. Um, and so it's a it's a kind of a problem it runs into. And I think Kimberly is one of those characters who it feels like there's a lot of working backwards to figure out there's got to be something you can use him with. It's like, ah, this works well enough. And that's kind of how it feels like he gets used in the last stretch. I agree. And I think I agree with the criticism that not enough characters get killed off. I will say, though, that's a criticism I have with, like, 99% of, like, mainstream pop fiction. Like, mm -hmm. Gundam, I think Gundam is a relative rarity of a long-running franchise that has some fucking balls where this is, like, you know, um, you know, I think most Star Wars would benefit from killing more characters. There's a reason mm -hmm. why something like Revenge of the Sith works so well is because it goes for the goddamn jugular in a way that I think, honestly, if George Lucas and everyone involved had a rewrite, they would do in Return of the Jedi in several places, right? Mm -hmm. Like... 
no one honestly thinks Han should have lived through that. You know, stuff like that. Um, I think a lot, you know, and I don't just think this about this anime. This is a common thing in anime, too, because, you know, you grow attached to characters and you don't want to kill them. I think anime is a broad enough category that you can find lots more anime that are better about killing than you can find sort of, you know, your homogenized American things. But again, it's just it's it's so... I'm so sort of used to this. One Piece has the exact same problem. Because this is the thing. When Full Metal Alchemist wants to kill a character, it does it really well. All of the major character deaths are great. Hughes, Lust, um, Fu and Buccaneer, that's one of the best things in the final stretch of Full Metal Alchemist is yes. their death. Um, and this is also a criticism with One Piece. When Eichiro Oda actually commits to killing a character on One Piece, it's amazing and he does it beautifully he does it way too sparingly is the problem and he's too precious with his characters but again i think that's a fairly common issue um doesn't excuse it but i i don't know i put it put it in context for me yeah but i think for me like i think i feel it as an issue more acutely with full metal alchemist than i do for most things partially because it does set itself up right to to have that be like one of the options available to it right there are lots of stories that don't kill any characters outside of the occasional villain. Um, and that's like that's probably like the most common thing is like no character deaths at all throughout the whole show. Um, and but when you do play that card and it's like, okay, this is on the table. you can kill a notable recurring character and they do it very early with Hughes. Um, and then also they you know and also they kill off lust and so that shows it's like, okay, we're willing to kill off our villains because I feel it more with the villains honestly than anything else. Um, it's like you've set yourself up to be a series willing to do this. And then when you don't follow through on it for the whole rest, it like, I think it's, it, it's more notably a flaw here to me with Full Metal Alchemist than other equivalent shows. And I can't speak to One Piece because uh, I haven't seen it, but other shows where it probably would be better if they killed off more characters, but it doesn't feel like such a problem because it hasn't really set that up as an expectation of something that the show is going to do or it's going to go to that territory. But once you've set up that expectation and you've shown you're willing to do it, then I think you have to you have to live up to that expectation. And it's like you've played that card, that card's been played. It's in it's it's on the field and you have to start using it. Or it or it nothing else rises to the dramatic stakes that we had very early on. And it hurts this whole middle section of the show where we're never getting back to the dramatic highs we had when Hughes died and Lust was killed later. And instead we keep on toying with it and then pulling back from it for a huge stretch of the show until Food and Buccaneer are killed. Yeah, that's fair. And, you know, this is generally, I I think there's sort of a, a view sometimes in fiction that, okay, you kill a character early on to let people know anyone could die. That only works if people do wind up dying. Yes. <laughs> like, you know, um, I have... I don't know why this is the one coming to mind. This has nothing to do with anime. It involves a very shitty person. But Joss Whedon would always talk about this on his shows and stuff. That you would kill a character at some point to let everyone know the stakes are high. I remember this in the movie Serenity, the sequel uh-huh. to the Firefly show. At the beginning of the big final action sequence, they kill Wash, the Alan Tudyuk character. And the the whole idea was, well, we want to express that this is going to be a very tense final act. And it is tense. My problem is Wash is the last character that dies in the movie. And it's kind of like, well, then, like, what are you you establishing the tension for if you're not going to resolve the tension? Um, You know, and there's, there's lots of examples, I think, like that, where you kill someone relatively expendable, but then keep everyone else on the table. Um, Gundam does not have this problem. Um, 
generally. There's some lesser Gundam series that do, I guess, but Gundam in you know proper does not, and so yeah, yeah. They can't. So it, they can't all be Iron Blooded Orphans, Sean. No, if if only you know shows were just as bloodthirsty as we need them to be. But yeah, I think the problem is particularly with the villains that it lets the villains sort of stagnate. And this is more a problem for the next arc than it is this one. But it's when talking about Kimberly, it's one of the things that comes to mind for me. Because if you're narrowing your focus to just Kimberly in this section of the show, yeah, he kicks ass. Like he is a really interesting character. It's like they play the line really finely. And I think they do it really well between him being just sort of dumb enough. Not to say that he's dumb, but he's dumb enough to not catch on exactly to what's happening, but smart enough that eventually he can. Like It's always you're playing that line of like, is he going to figure out that he's being played? And when is he going to figure it out? Because obviously he does figure it out eventually. And that's what causes all the stuff that eventually gets Ed impaled. Um, but that tension there where he holds all the power in that scenario, when is he going to catch on to exactly how he's being played? Um, that dynamic for that whole big sequence of them in that town searching for a scar um, is really good. And Kimberly is like the only villain in the show that would really be able to sort of like work with that kind of dynamic. Yes. Because it's not even, I don't know if dumb is even the right word, but like blinded by ego. Like he sure, thinks yes. he's better than everyone. And they're, all of their sort of machinations are meant to try to play to that ego. And it's when he realizes he's being played to. It's not that they're actually afraid of him. It's that they're trying to trick him, you know? And I like that sort of balance, too. Because it's the characters working with sort of who they see in front of them. And what, like, Kimberly's actual flaws as a person are. Which is that he's an egotistical maniac uh, who's bloodthirsty and has sort of a... I guess the, the closest I could view, like, his sort of philosophy, which he does lay down at a certain point about, like, he wants to see how the world will fall, is he has kind of a principled nihilism. Nothing sure. fucking matters. He just wants to see, like, where the chips will fall. Um, and I think that's an interesting sort of uh, motivation for the character. But, yes, when you get into the... When they're, when they're out of Briggs and they go to this snowy mining town to capture Scar... The incredible set of episodes you know mm -hmm. i love the entire you know they they meet scar they capture him scar seemingly escapes with winry then we double back the manga does this too but i think they're having an episodic break there makes uh -huh. it even cooler as a like switch because you get to close an episode do your big cliffhanger with scar has kidnapped winry and then double back in the next episode and they are able to really take their time with the flashback there um and I love that turn where Winry doesn't forgive Scar. And I actually really like how they kind of toe the line here of there can be moving on and acceptance without saying, like, you have done enough to be forgiven, which Scar has not at this point um, and maybe never will, as, as Scar freely admits. But Winry also knows that it would be the wrong thing to kill him. And it is, you know... Winry is a character who is very important to Full Metal Alchemist because if she didn't have that point of view, Scar would be killed there by one way or another, and then the world would be lost because Scar has a very important role to play in the end of the series, you know? Yeah, and it's particularly it's important because Scar as a character, like, right, he's a man of few words. That's like he has to, he can't very often speak at length and like sort yes. of philosophize or whatever. He can't like... It, it it kind of ruins some of the like effectiveness of the character if he was to go and sit there and tell us all these kinds of things and learn this revelation. Because really what we're doing in that scene is we're seeing through the lens of Winry how Scar's perspective shifts because he adopts the same perspective she does 
just towards Amestris, right? That's like, it's not that I can forgive this nation and its military or its people for what was done and what continues to be done um, to the Ishval people, but I can recognize that the only productive thing to do is to target specifically the people responsible and try to affect change by attacking the top rather than just lashing out at every single person I run into that I can put some kind of blame on, which is what he's been doing. And it's like, not to say that a lot of those... Um, if they are similar to what we saw uh, Roy Mustang doing, it's not as if those people don't really kind of honestly deserve to die. Like in any context, they would be executed by a military tribunal for all the war crimes they committed, like Roy Mustang should have been at the end of the series. Um, but like, it's not going to actually fix any of the problems he has. So it's like, not that it's a bad thing to do necessarily, depending on your moral compass, but it's not going to do the things you need to do. Um, and learning to sort of look past that immediate need for and for revenge towards a higher cause um, and recognizing that those people you meet along the way that you could be killing like Roy Mustang are more useful and effective to allow them to try to work for penance and allow them to try to do something um, productive if they are willing to. And so that shift in perspective is really important. And Winry is the character you need to be there for that to happen, not just for her, but also for Scar. Yes. You know, this is, I think, if we're talking about the broader, I think, political, moral philosophy of the show, I do think this is it. I do think Full Metal Alchemist and, and Arakawa in her writing has, uh, writing of the series, has a sort of restorative justice view of the world. And yeah. that is where the series kind of points its characters. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I, I That's probably where my views on a lot of things lie, too. Um, and I actually wish it vocalized it and leaned into it even more down the home stretch because I think what they do with Scar here is beautiful and I love that and yeah. I love what Rinri does. To, and this is what I was talking about earlier with like saying Scar's, you know, vengeance, just blanket vengeance wasn't productive, right? He is thinking about how to, because the, the view of the series and this is the restorative justice idea is you can do eye for an eye and just kill the people who killed your people or you can try to, you know, come to a, a point where you are all working to restore as much of what was lost as is possible and make things right and better. And, you know, if if Roy Mustang's ending is he has to spend his life working to better the things he worked earlier in life to ruin, I have no problem with that as an ending. Yes. And I think that is, uh, and I think Brotherhood gets closer, not perfectly, but closer to that as Roy's yes. ending than the manga does. Um, and I think Scar's ending is 100% about that. You know, he's mm -hmm. like, I've, I'm a man who's died twice, but God has kept me alive. I'm going to do it for this reason. I find that a beautiful way of looking at the world. And I guess I just wish there was more of that. I wish there was like a more pointed, like, the people in the Amestrian military, we don't need to execute all of them, but if they're willing to go to Ishval and help build houses and shit, that is worth more than killing someone, I think. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's what I wish is that I wish that that felt like it existed in the dimension that Ed and Al operated the plot as well. Sure, Not to say sure. that it doesn't at all. It does a little bit. Um, but particularly at the in the home stretch, they that's one of the things that happens when they get kind of lost in the mix amongst all the other things going on, is yeah. I feel like you kind of lose that thread and that aspect of them. Because for me personally, like my interest really in kind of like the main plot and ideas of the show peaks with Scar's fight with um, uh, Wrath, because those are my two favorite characters in the series. Um, and it's like, and it's I a like a lot of... fight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's a great fight and it's a great sequence. It's a great resolution. Um, and they're two great characters. Um, and I like a lot of the stuff that happens afterwards. 
Um, but for me, like my favorite stuff in Full Metal Alchemist ends there. And then, it, and then it's where you, I then realize like, oh, a lot of my favorite stuff kind of doesn't really exist in the Al Ed side of the show anymore. Um, and that's, I think, part of the problem is it, it, that it has all these great ideas that it's developing in these scenes. But Al and Ed, through the series, start moving further and further away from those thematic elements and their plot kind of goes in a different direction. Well, because Ed and Al's plot ultimately involves a very neon Genesis Evangelion ass. Yeah. I'm going to claim God into my body. And I mean, literally, like when you, it's one thing in the manga, when you animate it, all the stuff with Father in the final four episodes is just Eva as fuck. Um, mm -hmm. And all the views of like the earth and the heavens coming together and all that stuff. And that's just politically very detached <laughs> from anything going on with Scar and Wrath and the stuff you're talking about. And here's the thing. I think, I think there are ways to dovetail it. Ed and Al's yes. specific ending in the final episode being that they've, I love Al's last little monologue he has. He's talking to Hughes's uh, wife, Gracia, and their, her daughter. And he's saying, we've come up with something better than equivalent exchange. If someone gave us 10, we're going to give them back 11. And that's we're going around the world trying to do that. That is squaring the themes of the restorative justice stuff with the Ed and Al stuff. I just think there's a step missed there, you know? Yes. It doesn't have anything to do with what they do with father. Yeah. It's like yeah. they learn that lesson kind of more or less off screen. Um yeah, it, 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 yeah, because you're right. It's not that like there isn't the material there to do it with. It's just it gets lost in the mix once you get into all the craziness of the rest of the stuff that the plot starts doing. I mean, speaking of the sort of restorative justice angle of the series, some of my favorite characters in the second half actually are our four uh, Chimera characters. We have mm -hmm. Gerso and Zampano, and then we have Darius and Heinkel. Um, I love all four of those. They're all like working for Kimberly, working for the government. They're seemingly big, scary monsters. And um, through Ed and through Al, they wind up kind of on both sides of the brothers. Just by meeting them and, and being offered like sort of grace and mercy, they decide like, this Kimberly dude sucks. Let's do something good with our lives. And they're even kind of viewing like, yeah, our Chimera bodies aren't perfect, but you know what? We're going to put them to use for this. I just love those characters. I love them all yes. throughout. They do great stuff. The voice acting's wonderful. I think they're very in tune with, I think, the heart of this series. It's great stuff. Yeah, I agree. Like they're they're not to say that they're not like the most major characters in the series, but it's another one of the things in the Briggs section that feels like a good new injection of life into the series that you get these um fun pair of chimera dudes. Um and I really like when they like meet each other and they're like, What the hell? Like you're you're working with Kimberly. It's like, no, you're working with Kimberly, right? And then they slowly realize that they have both groups have separately done the exact same thing, which is very yes. fun. Yeah, no, good characters. And yeah, this section is just so tense. Um, we also, we just need to double back because we said it. But let's talk about why the animation here looks so good. Mm -hmm. I think the, because we talked about this show makes a very bold choice in its background style yeah. early on. And sometimes it looks terrible. Pretty much anything in the first half that is in daylight or God forbid nature, like out on a dirt road or something out in like mm -hmm. um, where, where the... Rizambul, yeah, uh, looks terrible. Some of the stuff where it is a mistress at night and it is moodier, noirish lighting, it actually does pretty well because you can have this kind of lighting that is sort of like clumpy and chalky and um, more, imp honestly, like impressionistic in the sense it looks yes. a little like a very cheap version of like a Van Gogh kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And that looks really cool. You get to the north 
it works perfectly because snow is a hard thing to animate. You either just do blanket white backgrounds or, you know, you go more complex and it's difficult. The chalkier kind of textures and everything makes the snow look really cool. It allows them to like use color in a way that I think evokes lighting in really interesting ways. This is one of the few parts where I think the lighting is not the same as what the manga does, but I think it is a just as good replacement um, because mm-hmm. the lighting in Arakawa's manga is incredible, but it's so built on black and white and warish, like harsh contrast that you kind of can't do it in a color anime. This is a part where I think they find a replacement that is just as good for color anime. Um, and just all of that together, I, I love looking at everything in the Briggs section. Yeah, I 100% agree. It's just the whole aesthetic of the show works really well. Um, it is, it's, it's just a weird thing because I... I feel like you don't see anime that does this, right? Where it's like, oh, this the like very particular aesthetic you have gone for works really well in these settings and these scenes, but like garbage in these other ones. It's just a, a it's a observation I don't think I have literally ever made about any other anime I have ever watched. It's like the aesthetic choice you have gone for. You know, sometimes you'll have like this scene looks really good and this works really well here and it's just fine over here. But yeah, but there's like this really harsh swings you get in Brotherhood between this is a great shot, this looks fantastic, to oh my god, I can't even really tell what I'm looking at because of how indistinct and chalky and weird it is, even though it's meant to be representing a building, you know, like a very distinct, clearly defined object and there's no clear reason why it should be something hard to observe. Um... And so it's a weird choice that they went for. Uh, I don't think it was ultimately, in the broad scope of things, a good choice. But the times it works well, and it works really well here for this big, long, sustained stretch of the show, it does look really fucking awesome. Yeah, I mean, ultimately the problem is sticking with that aesthetic come hell or high water. Like, there's plenty of shows that sort of shift how they do things depending on Mm -hmm. the location. And there's no reason this show couldn't have done that and had Rizambul drawn differently than how you draw Briggs. I think the problem is kind of the blink. And, and also, I just think the animation pipeline for the show clearly is better as it goes along. The oh, early yes, episodes yes. are not as well animated, um, which happens. That's not uncommon necessarily. But yes, uh, here though, looks great. Very tense set of episodes. Love all this stuff. And then, yeah, the big climax of it is Ed gets impaled on rebar in the grand tradition of characters who get impaled on rebar. And in no scenario would they actually live, but they do. So Ed goes in there within the same camp as Joel from The Last of Us. Just, he yeah. would die from that. But okay, we're going with it. Yeah. And, and you know, the funny thing is, is you know, he is able to take this experience of being impaled on rebar once and he gets to use that to help him when he's impaled on rebar, not as substantially, but again, in the very instant where he gets his arm impaled on rebar in the fight with father. It's like, you know, which that one you'd definitely be able to survive. It hurt like fuck. But this one, yeah, he's, yes. it, it's like a whole fucking thing straight through his belly. Uh, yeah, I, I think he would have probably not quite made it for the, the get hauled off to the doctor to go help him out. Um, or, well, because what he does, right, he like, this is one of those things that's like very conceptual and I don't know if it makes any sense, but it's fantasy so you can make whatever the fuck you want, where he uses part of himself as a philosopher's stone and he human transmutes himself somehow without, but it doesn't open the door because it's not really human transmutation, I guess, but he somehow turns himself into a philosopher's stone to heal himself. And so he shortens his own lifespan to heal himself, which that concept on its own 
regardless of the mechanics of how does this work with alchemy, that's in everything. Shonen protagonists are always like somehow shortening their own lifespan in order to like heal yes. themselves or be stronger or whatever. It's a, a very well-worn trope. Um, but there, there is a moment where you're like, is that how that works? And there's a similar thing later with Pride where he guess he does the same thing where it, it's like, oh, I guess he can he can make himself into a philosopher's stone some somehow, whatever that means. The uh, the whole mechanics of philosopher's stones get uh, stretched a little too much. What's funny is that in my memory going into this sequence, I vividly remembered because in that scene you have the two. Who are the two that are with him? It's Heinkel and Darius. And Heinkel yes. and Darius find the Philosopher's Stone Kimberly mm-hmm. had. And eventually, through Heinkel, it goes to Al in one of my favorite sequences where Al gets it and fights with it. And that's a very good sequence where Heinkel has to like talk him into it like, yes, these lives were taken, but you can use them to fight back against the people who took them. I always remembered in my head that what happened in this scene is Ed saved himself through the Philosopher's Stone. And I remembered Heinkel's speech to Al being given to Ed here. And I think I remember it that way because it makes more sense. It just frankly makes more sense if it is Ed bleeding out. Darius and Heinkel are saying, use this stone and you'll live. And Ed saying, no, it's wrong. And them saying, like basically talking him, you know, off of his moral absolutism a little bit. And honestly, you could still then do it with Al, because I think both characters having to make the choice parallel and separate would be interesting. But that isn't what happens. And so in my memory, it just is because that makes more sense if it were just he used the Philosopher's Stone, sealed the breach, and then went to a doctor. I I don't know. Do you agree? Yes, because I I had the same thing. Like, even though, like, you know, I just read the manga for the first time, like, four or five months ago or whatever. Yes, I remembered is both this... And then also, I had a very similar thing with Roy Mustang and him performing Human Transmutation, where I, for this, I remembered it being what you, basically what you just described vaguely. It was like, oh yeah, Ed has the Philosopher's Stone and he's forced to make the choice and he's finally like able to convince himself that, okay, like I, if I use this, it means I have to live up to the souls that I'm going to use. Um, but, it, but it is appropriate, you know, and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, because, as you say, it is a much better way to kind of come out of that sequence. It makes more sense. Uh, it's more logical. Um, and then I also remembered, like, I could have sworn to you that Roy Mustang performs human transmutation to save Hawkeye's life. And it wasn't the weird, he's forced to do it, whatever the fuck that means, um, however the fuck that works, uh, thing that happens with him later on. I could have sworn to you on my fucking grave that it was a scene where he has has to use it to save Hawkeye's life because that is a much better way to do that sequence. And we don't need to get all of that yet. But I do think it is a thing where sometimes I think like Full Metal Alchemist presents itself a sequence of events that like feel really dramatically powerful and appropriate. And then it says, but we're not going to do that. We're going to do a much more convoluted technical version of this for no clearly apparent reason. We'll get to the Roy Mustang scene. Uh, that was my exact reaction reading the manga, yeah. I will just say. Uh-huh. Uh, I remembered it when we got to the anime because I had just read the manga. But yes, I had that exact when I went through the manga again. I uh, To the point where I had to go check, did Brotherhood change this because my memory is different? I do not remember Gold Tooth Doctor, the worst character in Full Metal Alchemist. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Is that fair? Uh, yeah, I mean he's yeah. you know he is he he is not a character. He is a plot function. Um, 
Yes. Yeah. But yeah, it's like, it is a thing in Full Metal Alchemist. It's, you know, again, this is some of the same, it's the same thing, I think, generally as the, like, Dr. Marco thing. It's like, in slightly different forms. I just, I think it's, and it's, to be clear, it's also far from a unique problem to Full Metal Alchemist. A lot of this kind of stuff is very much endemic to your weekly, or in this case, monthly manga production, particularly for something like this, where Full Metal Alchemist took effectively no breaks over the run of its serialization. Um, where you're trying to right, you're trying to lay your the tracks of your train while your train is running full speed ahead, and sometimes you can do that very effectively, and sometimes it's like, ah, oh, shit, I didn't plan this out well enough, and for reasons that we don't wouldn't know, but I'm sure that Arakawa had good reasons, and maybe she had the idea for the Al scene later, and she was already setting that up, and then realized like, uh, like whatever it was going on. Um, this is a very common thing. It happens in stuff like Naruto. I'm sure it happens in One Piece. It happens in Dragon yes. Ball. It happens in all these kinds of longer running um, manga publications that are just going, 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 going. They're going to get these weird little plot foibles. So some of them, like I think for me, the Roy Mustang one is a bigger issue than this one. Um, this one's like more of a, eh, it's kind of weird, but it's not a big deal. Um, but you do get a couple of them that are, are bigger issues, but this kind of one or the Dr. Marco one from the beginning is more, it's funny how weird it is constructed, but it's not a, like, it's not a notable flaw really. Let's talk about my favorite one in the series. Cause it comes up here pretty quick is so af after this point, you know, Ed is impaled on rebar. He's separated. Al is off with the other group. This is also where you have Al start to have the, um, inconvenient times when he like flashes to his soul and he's out yes. of his metal body. Um, but so he is with the other group with Scar and Winry and May uh, and then Marco and um, Yuki. Yuki. Yeah, Yoki. Um, I just remember this. By the way, Yoki, uh, that is a character I love so much more in the anime just because Kazuki Yao just goes to town. He's so good. It's so yeah. fun. Actually, before we get into the thing you're talking about, we do because we cause skipped over it, we do need to address, because you you were talking a bunch of shit about this stuff in the first episode. I hadn't seen it yet, of how they integrate Yoki's backstory. I forgot. I, like, I completely I, forgot. I'm sorry. I It's, it's great. so much better in the anime. I he is, he is a substantially better character in the anime than the manga. Them playing this ridiculous joke about how nobody knows who the fuck he is, because if you're watching the anime, of course you have no idea who he is, because they cut out the story that he's shows up into the manga so nobody knows who he is he has this whole big silent movie flashback where he yes. narrates in narrates in a silent movie right um what happened the general plot beats of um chapter three of uh full metal alchemist all the stuff of the binding town leading up to him meeting scar and all this and nobody gives a fuck everybody ignores him nobody paid attention to it at all um, and then past that point, he gets to do all the Yoki stuff where he, because he was from a mining town, which is why this information is important, he's able to help them escape. It's so good. It's very funny. And I think it works honestly way better in the anime than it did in the manga. I think that is a direct, because that is around the time when they would have known we're going to five cores. We have time now because uh -huh. they yes. build a, it's a solid like five to 10 minutes doing the. St stupid silent movie flashback you m you missed one part of it is they do the whole chapter three they also tie in the chapter the dojin or whatever the extra doga chapter from the manga where you have um the other armstrong sister because you yes. have yoki go to armstrong mansion and get kicked around by the other armstrongs who we did not otherwise adapt for this series 
Um, and you have all of that leading up to it. And then it's Ed and Al still not remembering or caring. Uh, and because it is Kazukiyo just utterly going to town on this performance. Uh, yes, no, I 100% agree. They take what is, I think, if you in isolation in the first 32 episodes does feel awkward. And they take the awkwardness and make it a great piece of comedy that also characterizes Yoki. Uh, perfect. No, it, no notes. They did it right. It's it's amazing. I fucking love it to death. I'm sure it, it probably feels a little bit... I think the first half of it, I'm sure, feels more awkward if you hadn't read the manga. But as someone who read the manga in particular, I think it is so funny that they just cut his story and then they put it back in way later and nobody gives a fuck. Because again, like I said in the last episode, I would cut it. I would cut Yoki's story. It doesn't matter. You're trying to save time. Fucking... That goes on the chopping block very, very quickly in my estimation of what you, you need for the show. Um, and so finding the time to do a big joke about that in your show, fucking hilarious. It's great. It's down to the detail of like, even the intertitles in his silent movie thing look perfect for what Japanese silent movie intertitles look mm -hmm. like. Uh, it's, it's very, very good. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So okay. back to, uh, yes. I think we're building up to the envy thing, I assume is where you're heading. We have this whole thing where... Uh, this plot point I like, which is that you have uh, Marco use the the uh, chimeras to lure. They, they act like they're switching sides again. And they lure Envy up to the place where Marco and everyone is hiding out. And then Marco battles Envy and gets, like, destroys his Philosopher's Stone and gets Envy down to his, like, shitty little bug form, right? And they capture mm -hmm. him in a jar. I like all of that. I also think that's maybe the point where Marco should have died because he has nothing else to do in the series. Yes. And it feels like he's about to die. And then he this just is another doesn't. Thing, this is another thing I was flabbergasted that Marco wasn't one of the human sacrifices. I could have sworn to you on my fucking grave. And again, I read the manga like four or five months ago. This was a recent thing for me. I could have sworn on my grave he was one of the human sacrifices because I couldn't, for the life of me, figure out, well, who's who's the fifth one? It's Ed, it's Al, it's Izabi, it's Roy Armstrong. Oh, right, it's Dr. Marco. I guess it's Hohenheim? It's which, Hohenheim, which I don't know if that even really... I guess Hohenheim has seen the gate because... You know, but is he human? <laughs> like, right, he, that's the problem. Yeah, it's like so weird to me because they don't use Doctor Marco for anything else. Um, why and don't you not... have him have committed human transmutation yeah. or whatever? Um, yeah, because I don't need Marco to die in this series. I think Marco is actually a really good early example of the sort of restorative justice view the show has. Of he is someone who feels deep, immense guilt for what he did, and as a result of that, he works to do good things in the world um and and he obviously he lets scar disfigure his face he goes through all of this he works very hard to like make up for what he did um but i do think like him having a heroic sacrifice there would have been a good ending because otherwise he just kind of disappears yes so but whatever it's still a fun scene but what they wind up doing is they have envy in a jar they give the jar to May and they say, May, you should get out of the... This, this part makes sense. They're saying, May, we love you. Get out of the country. This isn't your fight. It's going to be shitty here. Go back to Jing. You have this. Maybe this will get you in with the emperor um, and all of that. And so May tearfully leaves. Yeah, Sorry, what? I think it's probably a bad idea to give her a homunculus. Okay, and just sure. say like, yes, yeah, yes. we'll just trust this other country. You just go give this to the king of your country. Here's a homunculus. Anyways, okay. this is maybe I'm... an incredibly bad idea. Okay, we're going off on a lot of tangents here, so let's do it. I have a whole problem with just that whole thing in general. The thing about 
I love the Jing characters, I should say. I think they're great characters. Yeah. I think Lin Yao and everything with his side of the show is like one of the most unimpeachably good parts of Full Metal Alchemist. Mm-hmm. I also love Mei. All good stuff. But the whole idea of why the characters from Shing are here is that they are trying to find the secret of immortality to offer it to the dying emperor to win favor for their clan so they can take over. But if you give the emperor the <laughs> secret to immortality, he will be the emperor forever because he'll live forever and he'll continue being emperor. That is never sufficiently explained for me. That is a sort of little plot cul-de-sac that never at any point makes sense. And then ultimately does end with them just sending these foreigners away with a philosopher's stone, a horrible forbidden magic that no one should ever know. I really do feel like Lin's ending should be, no, I'm not taking this evil back to my country. I will find another way to become the emperor. And that is the end of it. And and he all, and you could still have the same scene where he's like, and May, I'm going to take you into my family and we're going to build a better world together. I never at any point understand the logic of the, the Xing stuff and like how they're going to do this with the emperor. It, it actively disturbs me a little bit. Yeah, it, it is one of the places where, um, and you get this also with Ray Mustang's ending, how they use Philosopher's Stones there, that there's a sort of, there's an intellectual inconsistency that occurs uh, near the end of the series where it feels like more characters should realize maybe we shouldn't be using these. Maybe immortality is bad. Maybe this is part of the thing we have witnessed throughout our adventures is to let go of that kind of shit. But it just kind of uh, paves over that. But, you know, taking a Philosopher's Stone back to the Shang Emperor is one thing. Taking <laughs> Envy the, the <laughs> yes. Munculus, um back is a other like, you really want to do that? You think that's a great idea? Like... It's a it's a crazy monster that can like eat your soul and turn into other people and it's like if he gets some other souls he's gonna start fucking shit up which is is of course what happens later uh he, he just doesn't do it in Shang, um but yes it's it's like them saying May you should leave is fine them giving May envy being like you yes. should take this back to your country is like this is crazy, it is crazy okay but looking past that for a second they give envy to May. May runs off. She gets back to... It is the mining town that Yoki came from and where in the manga she's introduced. Here they rewrite it because we didn't see that scene earlier. But all the people of the town are really nice to her. She does, And again, this is a good character beat in isolation because this mm-hmm. is the decision May should make. Um, she decides she cannot leave the people of Amestris who are so good to her behind. And she decides to go back to Central. The stupid part of it is you have Envy talking in her ear about maybe you can find the secret to immortality back in Central, which that alone I don't like because the point of that beat for May should be the immortality doesn't matter. It's the connection she's made that matters, which is true to what she does the rest of the series, but whatever. Then, but the other part is they do this before the time jump. And so I guess we are led to believe that May, before the time jump, which is like six months or something, uh, is in this mining town Envy tells her to go back to Central, and I guess she just walks, and she walks pretty slow, <laughs> because when you get to through the time jump, and you go back to Central with Ed and Al and all our heroes, May is just arriving, and she's running around looking, and it really is written like yesterday she left on this journey, not six months I've been traveling with Envy in a jar. That, to me, is the biggest plot convolution. And I can tell you exactly how it happens because I find this in my own writing just for, like, non or, uh, nonfiction essays, you know, like academic mm-hmm. essays, is you outline something at 30,000 feet 
and you connect two things and it makes sense. And then you get down to the wire and you're like, oh, that connection needs more work. But fuck, I don't have time to make that connection work. And it's the weekly, monthly serialization thing. I think in the notes, in the outlines, Arakawa knew May needs to affirmatively choose to stay and fight for her character arc, which is true. And she needs to come back to Central and not be with the group for what happens because she is there with the group with Father at the end. I don't think she, in the 30,000-foot outline, figured out how that would intersect with the incoming time jump. And so you get this really awkward thing that, for me, is the dumbest thing in the series, maybe, of May, I guess, just walking around camping with Envy for six months on her way back to Central. Maybe she gets lost. I don't know. Maybe there will be a spinoff at some point about May and Envy going on the road, solving crimes, doing work. Yeah, I, it's it, it's pretty ridiculous. It, none, no part of it makes any real amount of sense. Like, why is she like? Even like, why is the idea of oh, at Central you might be able to find the secret of immortality like actually useful to her? Because isn't that why she has envy in the first place? Like, if envy is not the secret to immortality, why is she even bothering with carrying him around in a jar? If she needs to go get a different secret to immortality, why is she doing any of this? Like, it none of it really makes sense. I also think there's a problem here for me with like Envy's role in all of this, where I think Envy is a character who's way overused for me in the show to the point where like it feels like his effectiveness gets really, or their effectiveness, I should probably say, because Envy to me feels like a non-gendered character, but their effectiveness is like muddied because Envy is deployed too often and Envy has this like kind of Saturday morning cartoon villain problem of where Envy has been foiled at every single stretch because Envy can't yes. succeed because for Envy to succeed, a character would have to die or something drag would have to happen. But Envy is constantly kind of bumbling throughout most of the show. Um, and and then this is like the most dramatic one where Envy is like definitively defeated and then we have to go defeat Envy again. And I think there's, there is still value when we get to the next Envy scene with Roy Mustang. Like obviously there's a lot of material there that makes sense why you would want to do this. And I think there's some value with having Envy have to be like taken down multiple times there is some value there but i think that full metal alchemist has this kind of running problem with all of its villains that they're all defeated other than father and wrath all the villains are like defeated basically the first time you meet them or in lust isn't either but lust is obviously killed and so this is more of a problem post lust but like envy is constantly taken care of gluttony has been taken care of multiple times at this point and is not used for any particular reason that is a character that should have been killed probably when ed and al or ed and lane burst out of him at father's chamber should have just been the end of gluttony because there's no real reason to have stuck around with that character um when sloth is first encountered they freeze sloth the first time we meet kimberly he gets his fucking ass kicked by scar he gets his ass completely handed to him by scar and he has to go to the hospital to get healed of the philosopher's stone pride is defeated the first time they actually fight pride like all these enemies are taken care of the first time you fight them and it's one of the problems with you haven't killed off anybody other than lust is that once we're now heading into the last arc like there's not really a lot of drama to fighting Sloth again, other than like the scene can be fun as an action scene. But we took, but we had a scene where we beat Sloth. We've had a scene where we beat Envy. Um, you know, we we saw Gluttony get killed again, but it's like when Pride comes back again after they've already beat Pride in the forest, we've beaten Pride. Like we've seen Kimberly be defeated. So it's like when these enemies start showing up again that we've already taken care of, it ends up feeling to me like as we're heading into that last stretch. There are a lot of characters at play, 
but there's very little drama to be mined from a lot of the characters that you have left. So I do broadly agree with this criticism. I think Envy is actually the one it bothers me least with because sure. Envy's big final scene is about how it is trivial for Mustang. Mm -hmm. Like the point is no one is taking this all that seriously and Mustang is doing it sadistically. Uh, and that is the drama of that scene and Envy's humiliation is the other drama of that scene. I definitely feel this with Pride. This was reading the manga again and watching this again. I'm like, Pride gets defeated like three times. Yes. And I think each fight is less interesting than the one before because he just sticks around unnecessarily. Wrath is the best of the homunculus because they don't defeat Wrath a bunch. Wrath yeah. has the upper hand all the way through until like i mean he only loses to scar because he started with a significant handicap he and scar essentially take each other out you know and so yeah. i think wrath gets to keep a level of drama to him father obviously gets to keep a level of drama to him um but yes all of the other homunculus the problem is you know this so full metal alchemist in the promise day stretch sort of is like the one i compare it to most because this is just a show that's done it uh, many times because it's very long is one piece it has the shape of a one piece climax where you br and a lot of shonen anime do this obviously but yes. i think of one piece here of where you break all of the characters off into your various sub bosses and you save the hero the hero is going to lay the last punch on the big bad but then you know you've got zoro and sanji are going to fight uh, you know big bads number one and number two um and you've got everyone else are going to break off and do their fights one Piece is a pretty well-oiled machine at this, and you don't have, you know, whoever Zoro is going to beat, you don't have seven other characters beat them before Zoro steps up to the plate. Yeah, exactly. You usually, in fact, have that character defeat a bunch of other characters until Zoro steps up because Zoro is strong. And I think that is a problem, Full Metal Alchemist, not really being a shonen battle manga when it goes into shonen battle manga mode. It does some things very well, but I think some of that structural stuff, it does not do well. Yeah, and, and I would agree that, like, Envy is the character that I think this is, in many ways, the least important with because because it is part clearly part of, like, the point of the characters, that they're meant to be kind of pitiful um, yes. and shitty. Like, you know, he's just... Envy's just shitty at whatever at everything that Envy does, and, and so Envy getting their ass kicked um, and, and that being part of the point works. But the problem is that that only actually, I think, really effectively works narratively for me if it's contrasted with other stuff. Rather than, oh, but this is what the situation with all of the villains outside of Wrath and Father. So it's like, when yes. that's the same thing that's happening to Pride, it's the same thing that's happening to Sloth, it's the same thing that happened to Gluttony, um, it's the same thing that happened to Kimli. Um, it's like the power of that plot beat doesn't really work for me nearly as much as it should for Envy because it's not different than what's been happening to the other characters. It's just executed well because it feels more intentional in this specific instance. Um, but when it's juxtaposed with multiple other subplots, in my juxtaposed, like directly you're cutting between multiple subplots where other characters are fighting characters you've already seen be beaten. It's like, uh, like this works okay in a, in a, like in a vacuum, but within the centered within the plot as it's being told, it doesn't really work that well. And I think this just leads us into talking about this whole last arc where this is the problem with it. There are plot lines here building up to the, like the very, very end is kind of a different conversation, the last four or five episodes. But the build up to that is like, there are some plot beats that are fucking great and they're fire. Basically anything with King Bradley, I think is amazing. Like all the yes. stuff with him and Ling and all that stuff works great. 
but then it's so you got a couple of those that work really well but there's a bunch of them that only kind of work serviceably well or i think are kind of bad and so you're sort of juggling these pieces where because full metal alchemist isn't really a, like a battle shonen thing it's not what it's particularly great at it hasn't set itself up to do the one piece thing or like obviously naruto does that hunter hunter it's a very standard battle shonen structure it hasn't really sort of honed itself in that area and so at the end, when it has to execute on that, it's like horribly inconsistent in quality between the different kind of storylines that it's juggling. And I think in the anime, it does make for a couple of episodes that I had kind of a hard time getting through because they were focusing more on the storylines I didn't really care that much about and not so much of the ones that I did care about. And then the next episode would be, okay, now we're a little bit more in the King Bradley stuff or whatever. And I'm kind of sitting up and paying attention. But it fluctuates, in my opinion, wildly in quality episode to episode, just in terms of what's happening in the story. Yeah, so I will agree. I think The Promised Day is the most inconsistent stretch of Full Metal Alchemist. Mm -hmm. It is uneven. And I think it is uneven in exactly the way you're describing, where I think it has some of the highest highs in all of Full Metal Alchemist. It has some of my favorite stuff in anime is in these episodes. Like there's just some of the King Bradley stuff. I think the and I do think the specific like final four episodes, the general set of endings for our main characters. I love all of this stuff. It's really well done. But they're my least favorite stuff in Full Metal Alchemist is also in this stretch of episodes. So I hate anything to do with the stupid zombies. I think it's bad. <laughs> and I think it is bad that I, I guess a broader thing to step back is that Ed, Ed in particular, I feel this less with Al because Al actually gets some cool stuff. But I think Ed gets really lost in the shuffle. And Ed is our protagonist. Ed is the one who is going to throw the final punch on Father. And I think it is it is always interesting to see the ways various shonen shows do the thing where the character who's going to throw the final punch can't be throwing punches all the way through or else there's no drama. So, you know, Dragon Ball, I think, literalizes this in a very fun way where, like, the Vegeta saga, everyone's going full bore against the Saiyans. What's Goku doing? He's running back on Snake Road. You know, he's yeah. trying to get there as fast as he can. And it's really dramatic. Um, you know, and I don't think Dragon Ball ever does it that well again. But I think it also works in the Frieza saga of he's coming from Earth to space. He gets there and then he gets beat up and then he's in a healing tank. You know, this is the kind of thing that Dragon Ball will do. One Piece has all sorts of ways it does this. Um, I will say the Wano arc recently, recently finished in One Piece. I think the Wano arc gets clumsy at a couple of moments having to keep Luffy from winning. Um, but I think there are other One Piece arts where, arcs where they do it beautifully and perfectly. Um, it definitely varies. And I'm sure Naruto and everyone else has done this yes. of Naruto has to throw the final punch. How do you keep him out of the fray while keeping the sense that the center of gravity is Naruto as a thing? I, you know, And that is the question. How do you keep Luffy the center of gravity in One Piece? I think One Piece is generally very, very good at that. Um, I think Full Metal Alchemist has a real problem in the final set of volumes of... And again, I don't have... When you get to the end, it, the center of gravity comes back to Ed and it works for me. But I just think Ed is... They don't give him something specific to do that isn't fighting that keeps him significant. And so most of his stuff is he's fighting the dumb zombies I don't care about. And then he's fighting the other set of dumb zombies, which are the Wrath clones, the other versions of who became Wrath, the Gold Tooth mm -hmm. Doctor's men. Um, and that's just a boring use of Ed. 
Um, you know, Al at least has, he is left behind with pride in the dome that they've created, which is an interesting, and that's something that Al chose to do. This was his plan. And then when that breaks down, Al has the big fight. There's cool stuff going on over there. I feel it most acutely with Ed. So I don't like that. I don't like Goldtooth Doctor. Um, I, I think the, I think Olivia Armstrong is kind of wasted here. I think her and Alex's fight with pride or with sloth is good, but way too long. I wish it was mm-hmm. like half as long. Um, so yeah, it's up and down. But when it's up, it's very high. It's just when it's low, you're right, it is inconsistent. And I think I felt it, Sean, less episode to episode in the anime than more of a scene to scene thing because it's very much intercut. All of it is parallel and we're going in between stories. Yeah, I can't remember which episode it was. Um, I'm trying to like look at the episode descriptions to figure it out. And it's like very hard because all this stuff bleeds together immediately. But there was one episode in this stretch where I think it's maybe like the one after the zombies get out. I can't remember. I mean, the zombies were definitely in play at that point. But it was one where I could have like I because I literally stopped the episode at like 20 minutes to check. I could not tell if I had been watching it for 20 minutes or 40 minutes. It felt like, I was like, is this a special episode that is like a two times as long episode? (laughs) Like, I almost legitimately thought that. Um, And I don't know if I've ever thought that watching an anime. Like, anime to me is like the epitome of a piece of media that just moves. And like, if an anime is working really well, as Fullmetal Alchemist Brotherhood frequently does you barely feel like 20 minutes has gone by. Like, you feel like, oh, is have I been watching it for five minutes and the episode's already over? Crazy. And they're like, oh, no, it's been a full 20 minutes episode because you've been so wrapped up in everything that's happening. And I had a really harsh opposite version of that where I was just like, this will this episode ever fucking end? Um, and it's because I think it's just everything that's happening is so disconnected. I think that's also part of the problem is that it's hard to see really how... For instance, the Al stuff. Like, I think Al's fight with Pride and then when Kimberly comes in is one of the best fights just in terms of, like, choreography because it means that Al gets to do a lot of cool stuff with the Philosopher's Stone. But it feels totally pointless. Like, it's removed physically. Like, geographically, it's so removed from everything else that's going on. It's awkward because the zombies are a thing that, like, connect the other stories because everything else that's happening is all happening in central and so those different parties in central are having to deal with the zombies at the same time and then they cut to al and he doesn't have to deal with them so like the function of the zombies feels like it isn't doing the one thing it's supposed to do which is like conceptually connect everything that's happening and feel like oh these are all happening at the same time interlinked because everyone's having to deal with the zombie shit that's happening in some way shape or form but al's totally removed from that he's fighting two characters we've already beaten um it's like it's it's a thing that's like technically it works there's some good lines there where he has that's where al gives the most definitive like hey toka kokan's kind of bullshit and i like that but it feels totally unrelated to everything else. Um, and it's like, and then you cut from that to like sloth in the sloth fight, which is like, yeah, this is like well done action beats, but I don't really care. <laughs> like I don't, because we've beaten, we have seen this character beat sloth already having to beat him again. And he's like a little, and he's fast now is like whatever. And now here let's cut to Ed and he's fighting a bunch of zombies in the basement or whatever, you know, like, and then, Mustang and his people are just sort of talking for a big stretch before they actually become involved in stuff. There's just not really that much meaningful happening. And it just feels like you are juggling so many different characters at the same time 
but you haven't actually come up with a good dramatic pairing for them. Like there's no dramatic, there's no drama about Al fighting Pride or Kimberly. Like he has no connection to either of those characters at all. At least Ed got stabbed by Kimberly. Like if there was an Ed Kimberly fight, there would be something there. Um, you know, there's just, there's no buildup or weight or meaning to any of this stuff. And it's like, this is where every other Shonen show I have seen does this way better because they've done in, they put in the legwork to set up villain pairing and hero pairings and build it up in such a way that you're really excited to see, oh, how is Naruto going to fight this guy? Or how is Rock Lee going to fight him in this guy? And then, oh, and then eventually, you know, Yusuke Urameshi and Yu Hakusho is going to have to fight Togoro. Before that, Kuwabara has to fight this guy. You know, like you, you've, you've built up all these character setups and then you get to see them all pay off. And Fullmetal Alchemist feels like it just threw everybody into a blender and saw what came out. Is like, this will be good enough until we get to the actual meaty material. I mean, but but I think the problem is that sometimes it does it really well. Like, Scar and Wrath being that final pair. Yes. yes that yeah, makes Again, sense. I want to make it clear. I, I'm talking about everything up to about the last five or six episodes. Once it gets okay. to like the last five or six episodes, then it has cut everything down to the point sure, where sure, now okay, you okay, figured okay. it yeah. out. But it's like the long buildup to it is so much stuff that's like, other than when Wrath comes in, because everything involving Wrath is good, because him and Lean, actually, that's like, yes, that's a good pairing, because it's him and the Greed as well. That works real, really well, because everything they've done with Wrath uh, works really well. But everything else just feels like, eh, okay, sure, this works well enough. Yeah, I, I think, you know, there's, there's some of the stuff like the you know, sort of uh, politics and maneuvering of the military coup d'etat that is coming from multiple angles. I like all of that stuff. That's sort of sure. some of the fun kind of like political thriller stuff that honestly feels much more like the show's wheelhouse and mm -hmm. like where they're doing good stuff there. Um, you know, Mustang and Envy's thing I like um, with some reservations here and there. But yeah, I think there's a lot that's kind of wasted. There's stuff that I think goes on too long. I like the whole pride fight in the forest at night is a cool idea. I think particularly in the anime, it felt like it went on too long for me. Mm -hmm. um, I think in the manga, it goes... Also, Pride is a more interesting character in the manga by virtue of the manga has this very noirish, high contrast, black and white, you know, color scheme with a lot of deep blacks. And when, when, when Pride is introduced as just part of these shadows that you've been looking at for hundreds and hundreds of pages, and he's just in those shadows... There's something very scary about that that the anime just can't and doesn't reproduce um, for me. So I don't think the character reads as strongly to me in the in the anime. Um, I think if Al really did defeat definitively Kimberly and Pride, that would be one of my favorite things in the entire series because I uh -huh. think the buildup of that of Al, you know, doing the smart thing with uh, Hohenheim where he traps Pride is really cool. And then I think him and Heinkel, uh, who should also die here because it's drama, um, but like Heinkel being the one to like talk him through like it's okay to use the stone. And as you say, Al has the thing of rejecting Toka Kokan. And then Al is like one of the most talented fighters in the series. Just go into town with it. It's such a cool fight until it has to stop awkwardly and prematurely because Al just can't win yet. And it doesn't, it feels like he should just win. And I think if Al won there and then was like went off triumphantly to Central, boy, that'd be phenomenal. I'd love yes. that. Yeah, that would basically fix my main problem with it because it's like yeah. it would mean it felt like it served a purpose. Like we okay, yes. we took Pride off the board, 
something happened there. Like it, Al got to like progress, you know, have this like revelation of where he's arguing with Kimberly and he, he refuses the law of equivalent exchange. Like then it would feel meaningful, but because it just ends up at this weird standstill, it almost feels like a filler arc in a different show. You know, it almost feels like they had to come up with something in order to spin their wheels to have some time. Um, but that's obviously not the case. I mean, all that stuff happens in the manga. Um, so it's, it's just awkward. It is one of those places where this refusal to, until the very last moment, get rid of a character and end them is just like, it's a thing that really hurts this last section because if the show had been more willing to kill characters off along the way, it would have streamlined so much of the stuff, um, and allowed you to have a much leaner lead into the last arc. Um, but as it is, like, the thing that this reminds me of is a sh smaller version, but, like, emotionally feels very similar to watch, of, like, the last arc of Naruto, which is so long and belabored. It takes so much because there's so many characters and so many villains and so many heroes, and we just have to, like, everybody needs to get some kind of moment, but none of those moments can have any finality because ultimately it has to be Naruto and Sasuke that, that finish things off, and... It's just, you take so long to get through all that, and it just feels like you're spinning wheels until eventually you can get to the thing you really want to show, which is Naruto and Sasuke fighting at the end. And this is like the same thing, where it's like, we have, you've got all these pieces set up, so you have to follow through somehow, but really all you want to do is show Father become God and have Al fight him, and then obviously like some of the other key pairings, like King Bradley and Scar, you want that, and that's clearly been set up really well. But primarily, we're, we just want to get to the Father thing, and we're just spending fucking forever to get there. And honestly, I, I, I can see very simple fixes for most of it. I mm -hmm. think if, like, you know, having the two Armstrongs together beat Sloth, sure, that's fine. I just think it's too long. Like, mm -hmm. I would be totally fine with that because those characters' positionality in the plot does matter. And if they wind up taking out a homunculus along the way, great, do that. Um, I generally like the Mustang stuff here. I, you know, I think if you had Al take out Pride, great. It's just like there's a lot of points where if you just let things resolve or resolve more quickly, uh, I would like it significantly more. Sure, yeah. But as it stands, about, it, is, yeah. it is brutal, I think, for me to get through for some of this stuff. No, I would not. I would never call it brutal for me. I mean, again, this is a, this is a short anime in the, in the grand scheme of things. But yes, I do understand. Um, Let's let's talk about uh, Mustang. So Mustang okay. has a couple of different character climaxes here. I think the the biggest, most dramatic Mustang thing, which is his killing Envy and uh, Ed and uh, Hawkeye and Scar actually having to talk him down off the revenge cliff. Um, I like that okay in the manga. I do think that is something the anime does better. And it's not necessarily because the anime makes any big adaptational changes. I just think it's done extraordinarily well mm -hmm. on the level of animation and the specific set of actors you have bouncing off each other in those scenes. Good God, they could be reciting a phone book and there would still be sparks. It's just Shinichiro Miki is amazing there. Um, I'm forgetting who voices Envy at the moment, but um, the, the person who voices yeah, Envy. Yeah, Detective Conan. Uh, Detective Conan, <laughs> yes. Detective Conan is amazing in that scene. I think it's Hawkeye's best material. I think Romy Park is amazing there. Like, all of that is just done so well. I think they really, and I think, um, this is another thing we should just say, throughout this entire final arc, Akira Senju's music is incredible. Yes. You can just tell that, like, Akira Senju came back for, like, a third final big injection of music into the series. 
uh, and it's amazing. I think the music placement, the deployment of music, this is where I actually think the score maybe overtakes the 2003 score for me, where there is no single track I like as much as the Brothers theme from the 03, but I do think the music overall is used in such a way that yes. moves me even more. Um, this is a good example of that. But yeah, um, I, I think the anime maybe does it even better. I think there's a, there's, there's a lot to talk about here with Mustangs, you know, overall ending and i want to hear your thoughts on this because you definitely had you were previewing thoughts last time sean um i guess my issue looking at it again is that i think i like this thing but i do feel like mustang's climax like him having sort of violence and revenge in himself is something to talk about and resolve but i think it is too detached from his actual tragic character flaw which mm -hmm. is that he committed genocide yeah yeah, so I think it's a thing where, one, I'll definitely agree with you that I think the anime does it better just in the sense of, like, the production of the anime is so good. And I think so much of the sequence relies on the voice actor performances to be at this, like, caliber to, like, really kind of sell the material. Partially because I don't think all the setup has been done as thoroughly as should be done. But it's just, like... Yes, obviously Ray Mustang wants revenge for Hughes, but when it comes up here, it feels like, oh, we haven't thought about that in a very long time at this point. Um, so it feels like there could have been something more to kind of help build exactly to this point where he kind of explodes. Um, but I think that's one of the things that the voice acting and stuff is able to sort of help smooth some of that over. Because this is a problem with almost everything going on in the last stretch. There's such There's so many things happening that when you build to one of these big moments, it feels like it's been diluted because the focus has been lost on everything because there's too much stuff going on and it doesn't really have a clear thread on the overall thrust of the story. Um, but here, you know, that stuff is handled better. But I do think it is, everything is sort of weighed down by the fact that I don't think there's a clear idea of really what what are you doing with Ray Mustang? Like, what's the point of him? Um, and the fact that it doesn't tie any, like nothing in that envy scene is tied in any way to the Ishval extermination, even though Scar is also standing right there and envy is the person who set off that war. He's the one who turned into an officer and shot that kid. And that doesn't come up again, which is weird to me. Um, in that scene that like, it doesn't, it's not addressed. Like Scar doesn't say it, Ed doesn't say it. It, it like the biggest sin, it seems that the show believes that envy committed is killing Hughes because that's the thing that matters to Roy Mustang. But I think part of the problem is that like Roy needs to have a bigger perspective um, on things. Cause also Hughes was also a participant in that war. Hughes also committed war crimes. He's responsible for the deaths of hundreds, if not thousands of innocent people as like a high ranking officer, relatively high ranking officer in officer in the war. Um, and like, there's, there's a lot more layers that feels like could be extracted from the, what's going on here with the characters that are there and what we know about them and the backstory and everything. And the show goes for like the most surface level. He killed Hughes. I want to get revenge for Hughes, but getting revenge is bad, but it does it in the very like shown. It says that it's like that kind of confusing where it's like, no, you can't kill envy because you killing envy would be bad, but don't worry. I Hawkeye, I will kill him for you instead. It's it was just like a really confusing mix. It's like, but if you do it, you're doing it out of revenge. If I do it, I'm doing it out of a sense of duty, I guess. And that's like inherently better. Um, and it's like, I, you know, I get what it's doing. I've seen anime before, but it's a little bit of an eye roll for me on, on like the reasoning of that kind of stuff. But I think the other big problem here is that 
this is followed by the very next thing that happens in Roy Mustang's storyline is that he has to commit human transmutation for the rest of the plot to happen. And here you have this thing where he's on the border of making what other characters recognize as like a big mistake. And then they talk him down from making that mistake. And so then you have to, after that, come up with some way that he commits human transmutation. I think it would have been so much better if you let him do something here where he has gone too far. He's let himself be blinded in this moment figuratively with vengeance and a need for violence and to exact violence on envy. And because he has been blinded by that, he goes too far and something happens that then causes him to have to do human transmutation. That would, for me, it would be like the tenet of the Hawkeye stuff. And he has to save her life somehow by committing human transmutation. And so if you actually let Roy Mustang make a fucking mistake and and like actually commit a mistake rather than go to up to the edge of making a mistake, which the show just feels like it never really wants him to be able to do, um, and then make him pay for it. And then he then it gives him something to do in the last stretch of the show where oh, him doing human transmutation should be something that in some way is part is his fault. The way it is the fault of all the other characters that have done human transmutation have done it as because it's an extension of some sort of character fault they have, their arrogance or something like that. It would make his story so much more like human and powerful if he had to make a mistake and actually make amends for it. But it feels like Arakawa bends over backwards to construct the plot such that Roy Mustang isn't really at fault for anything that happens. And he gives over the he goes to the edge of doing something that the anime or the manga says is would be morally bad, but he never actually has to commit it. Even though we know all the bad shit he committed during the Ishval War of Extermination, and we're not really going to address that in any meaningful way whatsoever. And so it just it's so like treats him with with the kid gloves on to such absur an absurd extent that like it kind of ruins a lot of these plot beats for me because it feels like you're not really willing to commit to anything with this character. You're only willing to flirt around the edges of it. And particularly on watching it, now that I know that that's the story, so this is not me saying watching it because it's an anime, more me experiencing the story for a second time so I know where the plot is going. It like it reads even worse for me because I know that this isn't going anywhere. And so it's like, momentarily the mo the scenes are well played they're well acted they're well animated but i think in the broader narrative context there's nothing actually interesting being played out in any of these moments i think i agree and i think what's disappointing is that the material is so clearly there you just yes. have to push it a little further like mm -hmm. i think the idea of mustang going too far with envy there's a couple of different ways you could push that I think one of the things you just suggested is a really interesting idea. Like, what if his fucking Flames of Vengeance accidentally burn Hawkeye half to death and he has to human transmute her without anyone's prompting to fix an error he made, right? And, yeah. then, and then you have Father down in the basement going, these human fools, I didn't even have to push him. You know, something like that, right? Um, and then that would be, and then you would also then, what happens to him on the other side of the gateway, I think is an interesting question as well. Because I'm not super satisfied with it being the eyes. I think it's kind of a dumb metaphor. But um, in that instance, it would have worked perfectly. Like, if, sure. if that's yeah. what it did, the eyes as the metaphor would work great. It would, yeah. you know, again, he's literally blinded by rage. He hurts Hawkeye, yes. who is the eye lady. Like, he loses sight of himself. In that instance, it would work great. But I agree with you. Like, what actually happens, the eyes feel like a cop-out or something. It's, like, not really a, an interesting answer to yeah. what he has to lose. Yeah. So... Okay, you could do that. 
ignoring the human transmutation stuff for a second, I just think the conversation about why he shouldn't, like, why he needs to come down off the cliff on Envy just needs to be more connected to the idea that, you know, people calling him on his bullshit of, you want to become the leader of this country out of a sense of guilt and obligation for things you did in the past. You can't perpetuate that cycle of violence. Scar is there to speak to that, you know? Like, mm -hmm. um, there are multiple characters in that scene who are there to speak to that, and I don't know if it gets pulled as far as it needs to be pulled. And, you know, you're always going to have the silly thing about, like, well, someone's going to need to kill Envy anyway. I actually really love the scene where Envy is just so miserable. He They pull the fucking Philosopher's Stone out of their own chest and destroy it. It's an amazing little ending to that character, even though it, it does also kind of narratively cop out who's going to kill uh, Envy. Yes. Uh -huh. But whatever. Um, that's, again, that's a thing that happens in fiction, whatever. Uh, but yeah, it just, there there is this lack of sort of thematic connection and follow-through. And then I think, however he commits human transmutation, there needs to be a scene with him looking at himself in the mirror, literally. Because you have Ed talking to his alternate self. You have Al seeing his body. You know, you have these conversations with their gateway of truth. I want to see Mustangs. And I want to see what penance he pays, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, one idea I had is, I think you're right. If it was done in the way you were suggesting, the eyes make sense. I think another version of that is he comes out without his fucking hands. Because mm -hmm. those are the things he keeps snapping and lighting people on fire. And maybe a better break for him is just whatever world you're going to build, you have to do it without the thing you destroyed that world with. Right? Like, yeah. that's one version of it. And I'm not saying I this is the best idea. It's just there's things that, like, would feel more resonant. And again, it's not that I need this series to end with Mustang and everyone else possibly involved with Ishval hung it at the gallows and that's the only version of justice we can embrace i'm totally fine with a yes. version of this that ends with the characters working to make the world better after they had made it worse but i think there are there are just arakawa puts mustang in this series of really meaty scenes with like full of possibilities and I think takes the easy or least interesting way out. And that's what is disappointing. Because he is a character with a lot that you could do. And I think they just take kind of the path of least resistance. And that's disappointing. Yeah. Yeah. I 100% agree. And I think it's like really notable to me that like the main thing I remembered about this whole sequence with Envy was none of the stuff that had Roy Mustang in it. It was just the ending between him and Ed. Like this is Ed's most interesting thing he has, has, has had to do in the show since he got stabbed by Rebar, right? And, and it's like they finally gave him an interesting scene to play and it's him opposite Envy with him recognizing like you know, that you want to be human. Like, that's the thing you want. Yeah. And then Envy being like, how could I be, at the end, be understood by this stupid little kid? And then he kills himself. Like, that's a fantastic scene. That is a perfect ending to the character of Envy. Again, I wish that some of the other stuff around it was better handled to, like, juxtapose some of this stuff. Um, but that scene on its own is fucking awesome. But it has nothing to do with Roy Mustang. It has nothing to do with yeah. Murray Mustang's character arc at all. Um, I think it just kind of highlights that... At the end of the day, Envy as like a pairing for Roy Mustang feels really like surface level to me because yes, he killed Hughes, but at this point, it feels like the Hughes's death thing doesn't just doesn't feel important anymore. Like when you look at the scale of everything that's happening and how far we've come, it feels like we should be on like deeper shit at this point, 
than Mustang trying to get revenge for Hughes, especially when, again, Envy's the person who's responsible for the Ishval War. I mean, obviously, Father's really the person, but Envy's the dude who shot the fucking kid. He set it in motion. How does that not come up? Like, Roy Mustang doesn't know that information. What Envy did is the thing that ruined Roy Mustang's fucking life, right? The thing that Envy did is what led him to eventually having to burn Hawkeye's back off because she so regretted like giving him access to the secrets to flame alchemy that she would rather have it be destroyed for all time than ever let another flame alchemist be born again. Like that, a lot of that boils down to this character right here. And it feels insane to me that it never comes up and it doesn't feel like that that's the more important thing. The like original sin that stretches back so far this is the character that shot, that fired the bullet, that set all that stuff off. And instead of interrogating any of that, we're getting caught up on, oh, he's the guy who shot Hughes like 40, 50 episodes ago. It's like, yeah, I liked Hughes. It's sad that he got killed. Um, but there's, but there are much bigger things to be reckoning with at like yeah. the edge, at the end of this show at this point than that. And also like, uh, Mustang did work through this like because uh -huh. when you say that like Envy killed Hughes he fired the last bullet but like um, Lust also killed Hughes like, I don't it's like a weird like semantic mm -hmm. game here it was Lust and Envy together on the orders of father doing this thing and so getting revenge on Lust I think makes just as much sense as getting revenge on Envy right like yeah, they uh -huh. did it together um, and Mustang, the Lust arc, where it, which culminates in Mustang killing Lust, involves him working out all this other anger and ultimately taking sort of a higher, more complicated road to get to the answer than the cheap answers put in front of him by the homunculi, right? And so I feel yes. like we did the work through that, and it doesn't mean you can't have an ending where, in fact, you should have an ending where Roy confronts his instincts towards violence. I just don't think that's the reason for it. Honestly, if the reason for it was like Envy was taunting him about Hughes and, and Mustang was like, I've worked past this. I don't, you know, fuck you, kid. And then Envy was like, did you know who started the Ishval War? And that's the thing that set Mustang off? That would make more sense to me. Yeah, and that would make me like Roy Mustang so much more as a character. If yeah. that's the thing he recognized, it's like, oh, this is what it is. It's it's that war. Like, that's the thing. Like, me getting wrapped up in that war is is everything. Um, if if there was something that brought it back to that, it would make me care about it him so much more as a character, particularly in the manga, where again, in the manga, you saw him do way, way worse shit um, in that big Ishval genocide flashback, which is the thing that made me, like, instantly not really care about him that much as a person because i don't know about you but like as soon as you do a big flashback arc that shows that oh this character we've been following actually was like you know in a real world equivalence he was like a nazi guard that you know fought in world war ii and he like was outside a fucking concentration camp it's like oh well i no longer can have sympathy and you showed me that he was sad while he guarded the concentration camp it's like that's great he was a sad war criminal but it's like i no longer care about this person but if you showed me that character recognizing like what that was and doing everything they could to fight against it and like and and, and anchored it to that thing and him and that character wrestling with that in their involvement in that rather than it being this other kind of displaced anger to something pretty tangentially evolved that is nowhere near to the depths of this action and this participation in something so horrifying 
Um, that's the only way you can get me to start getting on that character's side and care about them is showing that journey, really. And it doesn't show that journey with Roy Mustang. It it shows this like pathetic, like side version of it. Yeah, I think that's fair. Do you want to talk about Mustang's actual ending in the series, which is after all the dust has sure. settled, we have him in the hospital with Hawkeye. Um, this is where Brotherhood makes one of its most significant deviations from mm-hmm. the manga. And again, who knows if this was based on an earlier Arakawa draft or if this, this is purely the anime staff. Maybe it's a combination of the two. But uh, part of this is also because the final chapter of Full Metal Alchemist is very long. It is about mm-hmm. the length of about three standard length chapters. It's like 120 pages. And they split it pretty much right down the middle into two episodes. But because of the split they do, which is where they end the first episode when Hohenheim dies back in Risenbul, they then just jump ahead two months to when Ed and Al are sort of setting out again. Uh, And because of that, they move up some scenes and they have to backfill some other scenes. Overall, I actually think it works much better having that split. Um, But part of that is that in the manga, we meet up with Mustang again for his final scene in the direct aftermath of the battle. And he is basically sitting in, wallowing in self-pity in a medical tent. And Marco comes up to him with a philosopher's stone and says, If you do right by Ishval, I'll restore your eyes. And Mustang says, I will. And it is the weakest sauce, weak sauce ending you could possibly give Roy Mustang. I distinctly remembered it being different from the anime because I'm like, the anime didn't make me angry here. This made me angry. This is a bad ending for Roy Mustang. I mean, in the manga, like Marco's literally like begging him with tears in his eyes because it's like you need to go and like it's all the stuff that they do have like they give have equivalent lines, but they give them different characters in the anime about like you need to go like change the whatever like the Ishfall replacement plan or whatever and and get them out of the slums and allow them to return to their holy lands and then in the manga Marco has another line with this like what is a very powerful panel for Marco as a character but Marco has been a non-entity for so long it feels weird that we're spending this much energy for him in this scene and not Ray Mustang where he's like and you have to let me work there as a doctor so I can make up for everything that I have done and then Roy Mustang's like, okay, I will do this. Um, and, and, and that's just like, it's weird because in the manga, it feels like the whole scene is really about Dr. Marco. And Roy Mustang is like a side thought. And it's a really weird perspective because it's just so backwards. Um, the anime, this is like a huge improvement. It doesn't fix everything. It introduces one detail that I think kind of is a weird thing that I don't think they should have added. Um, but... In the anime version, it is Roy Must. It is as you said. It's the time jump. It's like two months later, and Roy Mustang is in his hospital, and he is actively making plans already that he's going to go do this. And so those lines of dialogue about like changing the relocation plan for the Ishfalls and Ishfallen people, and like getting them out of the slums, and we're moving them back to the Holy Land, and we're doing this, that, and the other thing. It is Roy Mustang with his crew, and they're all talking about this is what we're going to do, and we're getting it together. And then that's when the doctor friend who brings Dr. Marco in, they come in with the uh, Philosopher's Stone. And there's a line of dialogue that if that almost feels like it's like a subtweeting or something, the chapter in the manga, because it's like they're like, oh, you're already doing it. Like we I, it's yes. like you're way ahead of the curve is like basically what they say. And it's very funny because uh, it's, it's like they like. You know, it's like a, a fucking Groundhog's Day thing or something. And these characters had done the manga version of the scene multiple times. And then they walk in. They're like, oh, my God, you guys are already doing it. Like, crazy. That's, it's different in this universe. Um, and that's when he then has to, like, say, it's like, hey, I'll give you this Foster Stone. Secure your blindness, blah, 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 blah. 
Um, but and then we'll talk about that in a second and how dumb it is that he that they cure his blindness. But like that perspective change is so huge. It is such a massive improvement. It does not fix my issues with Ray Mustang, but it does make it much clearer to me why the like why the perspective on Roy Mustang in the fandom is the way it is. Because if you did not read the manga and you only watched Brotherhood, you one didn't see half of the awful shit he did in the genocide of the Ishval War. And two, you got this much better version of his ending where you see him actively pivoting and making strong choices of like, I'm going to go do this. I'm not going to be like stymied by my blindness. I'm going to go and I'm going to like make amends for what I have done. Is such a stronger ending that it makes a lot more sense to me why people talk about Roy Mustang a little bit more the way they do if that's your reference point because he is I think a much more likable character in the big picture of the story in the anime than he is in the manga yes I think that's true and I think even if the anime had done some of the extra flashback stuff that's in the manga this scene would go a long way to like helping the image Mm -hmm. of that because it's it's even if some of the steps to get there are wrong, that is the right ending for Roy Mustang, is that mm-hmm. he is going to go off and devote his life to this thing. I mean, literally, when they come in, he's got Brayman, um, or uh, I think that's his name, um, yeah. like mm-hmm. quizzing him on things so that he can get it right when he's talking to the Ishvalans about like their crops. You know, like yes. it's a really good scene. My one problem with it is that it go, it's so close it's so it comes so close to like yes. hitting the home run for me and the the downfall is that he's offered the philosopher's stone they all they do add one other thing here where he says you can use it on me but first you're going to use it on a friend and he and it cuts to havoc and the uh, the implication is havoc is going to get his legs back um which is not in the manga um which is nice but what it yeah. needs to be is he should say well thank you for bringing the philosopher's stone but i'm okay i lost my eyes this is a small price to pay, but clearly I can still do my job and I can do what I need to do. That Philosopher's Stone, which was made from the Ishvalans, you're going to bring that to Ishval and we're going to use it to help them somehow. We're going to put that to work for building buildings or irrigation or something, right? And yeah. if that's the ending, then I don't care, honestly, what else happened to Mustang along the way. That's a perfect ending. Yes. Um, because that would be him saying, I lost something. I kind of deserve to lose it. I can still, with what I have left, make up in the ways I want to make up. Uh, and then we're going to take this thing and we're going to use it for the good of the Ishvalan people. Um, it doesn't do that. It is still so much better than the manga ending that, like, it doesn't bother me that much. It's just that it gets so fucking close to the perfect version of that scene. Yeah, it, it is, like, bizarre to me that the Philosopher's Stone thing happens and he gets his eyesight back. It makes no sense. Like, it's... It is so Ed, outside everything. Ed doesn't get, get his up. leg back. Yeah. Right? Like, this is like, with Ed, They and Ed has the line about, like, I'm keeping it as a reminder. Like, I don't need my fucking leg. And I did a th- wrong thing. Why does Mustang get more back than Ed? <laughs> yeah, this is what I mean by, like, this series loves to treat Roy Mustang with the fucking biggest kids gloves possible it's like you, you gotta coddle him it's like you, you can't have him be blind even though you get it's not like he's going out and shooting people like he doesn't obviously his eyesight would be convenience for him but it's not like blind people in the real world can't work like on humanitarian projects or something like you right. can do it 
Uh, it's not, and in fact, like I think it, it's one of those things where because he's blind, it means that he can't really be a great soldier anymore. That's a thing you can't really do if you're blind. You can't shoot a gun, obviously, right? So it's like that to me is like really appropriate that the thing that has been taken from him is one thing that he needs to have for him to be a like an effective soldier, at least like a soldier in the field, um, as opposed to like working on stuff in an office or something in the military. And so if it was he left the military, which is, I think, a thing he needs to do, that's like a detail that I really think the ending needs is for him to recognize being a dog of the state is a bad idea. And he should be like, fuck that shit. I'm out. I will, I'm will. i going to work for this universe's version of like the Red Cross or something. And I'm going to like help people that way. Uh, I do not need to be a member of the military fascist state. Uh, that's just like he should have to. He should have had that realization at some point is my feeling. But even and I also that, think, uh, yeah, sorry, good. And I just think also he needs to drop the whole thing about being Fuhrer at some yes. point, like or being die. Again, using the word Fuhrer loads that it's die Soto <laughs> in Japanese, but yeah. like, um, you know, he is not Hitler worshiping. But anyway, like I do think, like if that last scene was military or not, it's just that look with with my eyes taken, I'm not going to be the president, and that's okay. That's not my calling anyway. What I need to do is use the skills and the people in the network I have to do what I can for the people of Ishval, and we're going to go full bore on this. Great. Like, that's fine. And maybe he needs to be in the military to have the power to do all of that, and you can do that. But, like, I just think he needs to give up on the dream of being president because it's a basic want versus need storytelling thing. Yes. He starts wanting to be president because he thinks that's the only path to his salvation but he's wrong about that. In the same way, Ed and Al start the series single-mindedly focused on getting their bodies back, and they only get their bodies back at the point where they've long since abandoned that as their main goal, right? Like, this yeah. is this show is actually very good at want versus need storytelling with other characters. Scar is probably the best example mm -hmm. of that. He starts out wanting to kill all the state alchemists, and he ends the series realizing the way to fix this country is not to just kill more people indiscriminately, you know? Yeah, uh, but for whatever reason, just like a lot of that logic that applies in other places of the series just doesn't apply to Roy Mustang, including this like, well, you shouldn't just be using Philosopher's Stones for trivial things, right? And right. and I do think in this context, his eyesight is trivial. It's not something he needs. Um, it's not the same thing as, as Al using it as a weapon in the fight against Pride, because that, as far as Al knows, is like the line between me being able to fight against father and save the lives of every single person in this entire fucking country or me dying here and us losing this battle. So it's like in that context, it's totally appropriate. And it makes sense that, yeah, use the philosopher's stone. It is a worthy like cause. You can think of a thousand worthier causes for this other philosopher's stone in this time <laughs> of peace yes. after this battle than restoring Roy Mustang's fucking eyesight. Um, and... And it's a thing that, again, that feels like the show understands in other places and it just forgets here. One of the things the anime, though, does add is this line where Marco specifically says, this is a Philosopher's Stone that I made from the Ishval War, meaning that it is from the souls of the Ishvalan people. And that, to me, is so fucking gross. That's like, so what we're going to, so for you to go help the Ishvalan people, we're going to fucking use up their souls like a battery to bring your eyesight back. Never mind that. I'm sure there's got to be a blind Ishvalan person that would love to be able to see again. Let's not help 
that person with the souls of the Ishvalan people. Let's help you, Roy Mustang, the dude who immolated innocent Ishvalan people alive. Let's restore your eyesight. Let's not give, like, someone an Ishval, like, person, like, a child who lost their legs in the war and get their legs back or whatever. Let's not do anything like that. Let's not, like, perform miracles with this thing to go help those people or give them crops or whatever. We're going to let you see again. It's like, fuck off. Like, fuck off. It was way and better it, when it was just a generic philosopher's stone that you didn't know where it came from. <laughs> it being the Ishvalid people makes it so gross to me. But here's the thing. If the if the response was, absolutely not, you're going to take that to Ishval and use it to rebuild their buildings, then it's a good line. That's yes. my point. Right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if, that's, if that's not says, what they do. Yeah. I know it's not what they do. It's just, it's like, that's my point, though, is that they're so close to getting it. They're so close. Because all Mustang needs to say is, I'm not using the souls of the people I hurt to restore my eyesight. Let's all do good things together, which is the broad point of the scene. That's what I mean. They're very, very close to getting it. They're as close as you can come to getting it while still missing it. Um, But that is the Roy Mustang experience. Let's, where do you want to go next? Should we just uh, do the the broad ending, the like final four basically of the series? Um. Yeah, well, let's let's just zoom in because I assume you want to save like the Ed Al side of it for last because they're our, yeah. our main guys. So let's let's zoom in on on Wrath, um, and Greed. Oh and yes, yes, like, Wrath so and Greed good. And, and Scar and like that side of it because we kind of talked around it a little bit. Um, but it is like I said earlier, like it's my favorite stuff in the show. Wrath is my favorite character. Like I think he's the one villain character that I think the show does really well consistently throughout yes. the whole thing. He is like constantly threatening it's one of the problems with like them having the thing where for every other villain they get handily beaten the first time they appeared is that they no longer feel like a threat whereas like wrath feels dangerous and frightening for the full stretch of the series because they do the proper thing where instead of it being oh you showed up for this fight and then you got beaten villain um and then you somehow come back again we have to fight you again it does the appropriate shonen anime thing where you get what in, in professional wrestling is called a jobber. You get a character who's designed to be a character that gets their ass kicked by the villain to show off how cool they are and how powerful they are. For Wrath, it's greed, right, at the very beginning. Then the same, you get a similar thing with uh, Lean and, uh, uh, God, what's the Mizuki Nana character's name? Um, Yanfan? Lanfan? Yeah, Lanfan, Lanfan. that's it. Yeah. Um, she shows up, she gets her fucking arm cut off, right? That is a good example of that whole sequence with Wrath of how you can have a villain not be fully successful, but not feel like they're incompetent the way that Envy comes across as incompetent when Envy doesn't achieve their objective. Wrath fails to achieve his objective in that scene, but it is at such a great cost to the protagonist that the, the next story arc is largely informed by their need to get Lanfan medical care for her severed arm. Um, so Wrath has like been consistently used well. He's still threatening. He's still scary. And the moment where he, you know, he's like, they, he seemingly has been killed. You obviously know that he's not dead, but he disappears on that train track. So he's gone for a huge stretch of the first half of that last arc. And then when he comes back up and the Briggs soldiers have like taken control yes. of Central Command and all that stuff. And they're there and they're like, we did it. Yeah, yeah. Hip, hip, hooray, basically. And then... Then Wrath comes up, King Bradley, on the radio. He's like, "It's man, it's gotten really busy here, huh? And then he just starts walking up alone with his sword in his hand, like with the fucking radio. Uh, and then there's that great line where, I think it's Falman says, like, wait, is he just going to come up right through the front entrance? And Wrath says, like, 
well, why, why should I have to, you know, enter my own castle through anything other than the front doors? Um, and he just comes in and he just basically kills everybody. He kicks their asses um, and they like barely manage to fight him off by the skin of their teeth. And you get the two character deaths you get at the end that aren't villains. Um, it, that whole sequence and like Lean coming in with Greed and them fighting him. It's just the best shit. It is like the shining, to me, it was like the shining storyline in a big puddle of like eh, kind of mediocre stuff happening and then wrath shows up and as soon as wrath shows up everything gets so much better it, it's so true i think that is when in the manga the manga just locks in for the final uh -huh. run to the end and i think it's true for the anime as well there's a it's a chapter they borrow it for the title of an episode as well that is just the return of the fuhrer and it's just mm -hmm. like from that point on we're on good solid territory because everything with wrath is so good hirakatsu shibata who does the voice it is probably the single best performance in this show. It is just mm -hmm. so unbelievably good. There is something about Wrath that, and about Bradley, because I think that's the thing. He is the homunculus who is called by his homunculus name the least, mm -hmm. because I think he kind of identifies with it the least. He is King Bradley. Uh, and he is such a fascinating character because he does despicable, despicable things, especially in the Ishval flashback, you know? Um, he is a genocidal lunatic on one level, but he is also calm, collected, scary as shit, and seemingly pretty principled in some ways. And all of this adds up to a character that is kind of impossible to fully hate. Like he is, there's something about him that you respect more than Father or Envy or any of the other villains, right? Um, even if it's just raw power, you respect it. And then there are these things about him that are so inexplicable and alien because they're just a few degrees off from being human. Mm -hmm. Like, particularly the moment, I think the wrath moment that sends chills down my spine more than anything else is when uh, I think it's, God, I forget if it is Hawkeye or another character is talking to him about, like, your whole life is fake. You know, you were given this, you know, this king role. You were given a child a fake family. It's all fake. Does that ever mess with you? And he says, don't presume to think what is fake and what isn't. The one thing I chose was my wife. You do not know what it is to be the, the, the queen to a king. That mm -hmm. whole little bit about I chose her and we never really know what that means sends chills down my spine because it is, again, it's just a little off from being human and it is, and that makes it more alien than anything Father does. Father is a egomaniac. I understand egomaniacs. What Wrath is, I don't quite understand, and it scares me. Yeah, it's really because yeah, because I think you're kind of like combining two scenes because there's the scene with Hawkeye, which right, is, right. is at the end of the last, uh, the first half of the show. So we talked about it. I think we probably talked about that scene briefly on the last episode of the podcast. But yes, that's where he first like notes the specific thing of like i chose her um he says like she's a good woman is like specifically the line he says like is what he says um and then at the in his death scene which he's got the fucking best death scene yes um and lanfan is there and she says there like what a sad life you've had is there nobody is there nothing you believed in is there nobody that you loved and he says, like, don't presume to understand me, human. And that's one of the things he does is he really likes to call people human or ningen is the word in Japanese. Um, and like even more so than the other homunculi, which often like a lot like envy and pride both do that a lot as well. But Wrath like really likes to do lean on that word. 
um, even though he himself is effectively a human, right? He's not he's not really homunculus. He can't heal his wounds, right? He's not immortal. He ages like us. He is like us. He's just a little bit stronger. He's like the Captain America equivalent of this world, right? It's like, it's not that he's a superhuman. He's just like everything about him is that like peak human performance. And that's what he is. Um, but, but he says it's like, you know, she is the woman that I chose. It's like, you don't, and there don't need to be words. Like, I don't need to leave anything behind. There doesn't need to be any words that pass between us. Like, don't presume to understand what it is to be, like, the wife of a king. Um, and that's, like, basically the last thing he says. Or the, no, after that, he then says, it's like, you know, it was, it, you know, it was a lot. But all in all, it was a pretty good life. And then he passes away. It's like, he what dies a, happy. Yeah, it's what so a good. fucking death scene. Um, and it is that thing of where, like, it, you, I think you so feel how much he wanted to live his own life and how much he was trapped on the rails, as he describes it, like a life built for him on rails, and he went through it. Um, but I think that he truly, like, enjoyed humans, and he liked fighting them. He liked to see their plots. Like, I think if Wrath had been committed to Father's thing we would have lost <laughs> like 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 humanity would yes. have lost if wrath was like full in on it my read on him is that he wanted to lose right he wanted to fight a fight that he legitimately would lose and that's what i think he really wanted was to like have that experience and and you know and how like happy and overjoyed he is in that fight with scar um to have that fight and like feel this sort of like kinship with scar as two people who you know who don't have a name um, and don't have like a life of their own, but for Scar, a life built on vengeance for Wrath, a life built by father to create this plan. Um, and just getting to throw away all of that shit and just fight to the death is all that he really wants. Um, and it, it's that and his wife and this like one thing he was able to build for himself, which is that that little family unit. Um, yes. It's, it is, yeah, he's just such a powerful character because you... He feels threatening. He feels dangerous. He's fun to watch as a villain because of how scary he is. But also, I think you can't help but feel some kind of affection for him compared to the other homunculi because there is this, like, th there is this principled nature to him as a character that the other homunculi don't have. All of the rest of them are, like, kind of pathetic. He's the one who's, like, a real person. Like, he feels like a human that has been twisted, but he, underneath it all, he's still a human being. And all the other homunculi are like something else, right? They're not fully rounded. They're they're all shaped purely by whatever facet of the seven deadly sins they are. Whereas he's a human that has been like forced into that mold, but he's still a human underneath it all. Yeah. And it's not a flaw, by the way, that he, not father, is the best villain. The best villain can yes. never be the main villain. Darth uh -huh. Vader cannot be the big bad of Star Wars, right? right? You have to introduce the Emperor because Darth Vader is too interesting and too complicated. It's the same thing with Wrath. Wrath yes. has to be a side villain um, because otherwise he wouldn't be allowed to be this fascinating. It's it's that's not a problem. It is a it is a feature, not a bug. Yes. Um, but yeah, so he has, and and you also just the characters go through the fucking ringer defeating him because you have the big fight with Greed slash Lin. And then Lanfon and Old Man Fu and Buccaneer. And I also think like Greed is the one of the other characters who I think is just pretty much done perfectly from start mm -hmm. to finish. Yeah. Um, Greed and Ling. I think yeah, you kind of combine them, you know, at a certern point. They're literally in the same body, but I think the Lin Greed pairing just particularly in the anime, because it is two 
of the heaviest yes. fucking hitters sharing the same body. Man, yeah. The his ending in in the like penultimate episode just blew me away. It's so good, and I've seen it a million times. But all of that, you know, so you have all of these characters in combination fighting Wrath. And you have Old Man Fu going in for the kamikaze move with his grenades. Wrath just cuts off all the tips. Yeah, he Zatoichi's that fucking thing. It must be a deliberate reference to Zatoichi because that's in like half the Zatoichi movies. Zatoichi cuts off the tip of a candle and it's like still on the blade of his sword. Uh, But doing that with like packs of dynamite and like a suicide vest is so fucking good. (laughs) Yeah, he basically cuts Old Man Fu in half. Yeah. And then you have Buccaneer come in and impale Fu to get to Wrath. And Buccaneer is already dying. And Fu is like, oh, thank you. You gave my death meaning. And then they go off the bridge together. Uh, it's so good. It's like, it's it's the kind of good that it's like, eh, it's, it's things with Mustang off on the side, whatever. Full Metal yeah. Alchemist fucking rocks. This is great. <laughs> Yeah, that you know? like it's that kind of thing where you just really wish that a lot of the other like villains and like the other storylines could be this good. It's just like it's like it's so much better than the surrounding material. It's fucking crazy. Um, it's like it's like where did like the balls go for Full Metal Alchemist and all the other storylines? That's like why did they? There, it's all here. Like all like the guts in the storytelling and the edge to the storytelling that Full Metal Alchemist kind of has lost over its longer runtime and its willingness to kill off characters has kind of gone away. It was all contained in this one sick fucking scene um, between Wrath and just him kicking everyone's ass. You know, like the whole thing where he's running up and he just fights that tank single-handedly to get up to the top. (laughs) And the tank is just like desperately reversing, shooting tank shells at him. He's just like, go, go. Jesus. It's, It's like you could... It's one of the coolest scenes I've ever seen in the anime for like a villain character to set up how frightening they are. Seeing this tank just terrified shitless of this one dude with a sword running at them is amazing. Um, everything about that whole dynamic is great. Also something to note about the anime is that Brotherhood has up and down animation throughout because it is a weekly anime that we've mm-hmm. been for over a year. Um but literally any time Bradley is on screen, they uh-huh. just go all out. It's just yes. they never down to like if if he's in a theme song, it's the best cut in the theme song. Like in, I think it's the it's again the first theme song. You have a big thing where he's fighting two of the homunculus on the roof, or not the homunculus, to the like greed and one other guy, and mm-hmm. it's like crazy fast animation. And then in the final theme song, Rain, you have that amazing shot of like Scar ripping off his jacket as Wrath is like lying in the rain. And it's mm-hmm. just like it's they always always do amazing animation for Wrath, and that is true for every scene he has. Um, so all of that is great. And then his final opponent is Scar, which I think makes sense because this is the guy who exterminated his people. Uh, and also there is that connection of they're nameless. They both, you know, have thrown away their pasts, all this stuff. It's the kind of pairing that makes you realize how bad the other pairings are. Yes. Because you're, you literally are able to give Wrath the dialogue to like set it up and all of that. And their final fight is just so fucking good. And just that it ends with, like, Scar blowing Wrath's arms off. And then Bradley just grabs the sword with his teeth, stabs Scar, and then they fall back, both defeated. Beautiful. It's so good. It's Yeah, it's absolutely amazing. And all the, the dialogue there is great. We already talked about some of it with, like, Wrath, you know, saying, like, this is the only time I can really feel alive. You know, it's like, like this, we can fight to the death. You know, Scar's big reveal of that he has created the yes. reconstruction 
um, tattoo or whatever on his other arm and that being the culmination of the story arc right is that he is not a person who only destroys he's a person who can destroy and rebuild so he's made whole again um, he yes. later has this is after Wrath is dead but he has that great line where he says like brother he says this to himself like brother you said that like you know humans are made up of both like the positive flow and the negative flow for me a man who has lived my entire life of hatred but now is trying to help the people responsible that I've been like trying to get revenge on. Like, which way do you think I will flow? It's such a beautiful, beautiful. line uh, pulled directly from the manga um, as a culmination of Scar's character arc. Of course, like it coming out of the scene with Wrath of You, realizing that this is what Scar has become. He has become whole again, which is why, of course, he is able to beat Wrath in a symbolic way. Um, that's the thing that yes. like Wrath is surprised by and wounded by is the fact that Scar was able to transmute the earth and create something, not just destroy it. Um, that's a thing that Wrath could never do. He's a person who cannot find, he cannot really create things. The most he could do was pick his wife. Um, but he also doesn't have a child of his own. Like, right. He doesn't able to create his own child. He has adopted pride. Um, he's a man who cannot build. And so that is why he loses. Um, everything about that whole dynamic. Again, it's, in my opinion, it's the best thing in the whole series. It's like my favorite set of characters. It's my favorite scene. I think it has the best dialogue. I think it has the best, like, thematic resonance. I think it's hitting on a lot of the most interesting stuff um, in the series. For me, personally, that is where I think Full Metal Alchemist peaks. Yeah. Ken and Kenta Miyake, phenomenal. That line that yes. you were quoting is such a... It's, it, it's maybe the most beautiful piece of writing in terms of dialogue in the series. And I think, because wh where that happens is that after he beats Bradley, he goes over to the center of the circle and activates the reverse alkahestry circle, which unleashes everyone's alchemy. And that's the line that he says to himself. And it's just a stunning, stunning moment. You know, there's, there's, there's a good argument to be made that Scar is the most compelling protagonist in yes. both series. Because what uh -huh. he does in the O3 series is also really cool and great. Um, just very different. Um, I love that we have two great versions of Scar. But yes, this one voiced by Kenta Miyake, just outstanding. Yeah, it's, um, it's phenomenal. It was one of the yeah. things I was just like very excited watching the anime the whole time just because I remembered loving this whole scene in the manga so much and just being very excited. It's like, how is the anime going to do it? Like, I want to hear these voice actors because I love both these actors so much. Um, and it's like, it knocks it out of the park. It's like as good, if not better than I would have expected. And, you know, I, I don't know if I would personally say that's the absolute peak, although I have no arguments for it. It's phenomenal. Um, but if that is the peak, that's also the kind of thing, like what I said with, like, Bradley mm -hmm. can't be the main villain. Because Scar can't have that kind of moment, I feel like, and be the main hero. Because, like, yes. you're not going to have... The main hero is going to throw the final punch at the villain. It's not going to be as interesting as what Scar is doing with Wrath there, just inherently, you know? Yeah, and Scar as a character is too, like, the mystery and, the, like, the mystique of him as a character would not function if he was the main, main protagonist. Right. Like, some of that main protagonist, like, functional role needs to be taken off of his shoulders and put onto Ed for him to be able to do the things he needs to do as a character. Um, so, yes, it is a thing where it's, like, he is allowed to have this much more interesting... For me, more interesting, but like I think certainly more complex role and more sort of um, nuanced role in the plot because he does not have to shoulder the burden of being the protagonist of a shonen show. Yeah, but then down in down in the underground, we have the final conflict between Father Hohenheim, Ed Al. We also get Izumi Curtis there, and then we get Mustang, who's been Shanghaied. Uh, had his eyes taken away. Really, I think Truth is kind of a dick for taking someone's eyes when they didn't even choose to do the human transmutation. Maybe Truth can't tell if it was a choice or not. 
I don't know. But anyway, we have our five sacrifices who don't get sacrificed. They're fine after it happens. Um, but anyway, we have the big ritual that happens. And then we have all the ways in which a mistress has prepared for it. So you have Hohenheim has left the pieces of himself all over the country. And then you have the reverse transmutation circle Scar and the Ishvalans have made that unleashes everyone's alchemy. I want to talk about Hohenheim here for a second. Um, okay. There was something that hit me last night or yesterday finishing this series. I think Hohenheim might be my favorite Unsho Ishizuka performance, which is a hmm. tall order because it's yeah. Unsho Ishizuka and he's always, I mean, he's passed away now, but he is such a phenomenal actor. Um, but I just love Hohenheim as a character. And I think I didn't realize how much I liked that character until this viewing of Brotherhood because he just gives such soulfulness to it. And the idea of this character who had his life, he had both his freedom given and his freedom taken by father, by the dwarf in the flask at this young age, and then has had to live hundreds and thousands of years um, wanting to have a normal human existence, which is to say raise a family and die old with his wife. And all of that is sort of taken. But his way of fighting back against father is by embracing that humanity he still has. And so the reveal of I've already sort of defeated you because I did what you never would and I have talked to every soul in my body. And that moment where Father tries to take the stone from Hohenheim and he gets a couple of souls in there and then stops. And then Hohenheim just starts naming the names and telling Father about these people inside him and saying, I've talked to all 500,000 XXX, you know, however many. He has the exact number. Yeah. Uh, and that is the way he has set up this reverse circle to stop the flow of the souls. This, that's fucking badass. That's awesome. Yeah, I think like like Hohenheim is a character that is really good in the manga, but I I like him more in the anime. And I think it's it's not because the anime does really anything different with him in a narrative sense or anything. They don't. It's not like the the arm or not arm strength thing. It's not like the Mustang thing where they change the last scene or something to make it better. It's purely just like Unshu Suzuka's performance is so good um, that you know I I you know I would it would be a toss up for me personally of the stuff I've seen him do between this or Joseph Joestar the old version of Joseph Joestar in Joseph's Bizarre Adventure, which is also um, one of his last big performances uh, in at least uh, part four, which he was also in, but one of his best. But yes, it's certainly one of his best with Hohenheim, and I think. The thing that he really brings to that character, because Hohenheim is this very stern-looking character, right? He doesn't express a lot in his face. This is true in the manga, as well as the anime, because he's got this very harsh character design. Um, so he doesn't have the very kind of, like, you know, m you know, moldable faces of, like, Ed or whatever. He's such a hugely expressive character. He's so harsh. He's like a fucking Greek statue or something with the way his face is designed. So I think a lot is left to Izuka to find these like nuances to both always have this like very sort of like deep voice with all that kind of like weight and gravitas that he's often very good at in a lot of the roles he plays because it always sounds like a voice that's supposed to be coming out of this very stern imposing man. But you know that he has this very gentle heart that's underneath all this other stuff that he has put on. Right. And that really the thing he most wants more than anything in the world is to be a dad to Ed and Al, but he has this bigger thing he needs to take care of because of course, if he doesn't take care of this, Ed and Al will die. So it's like really the, he's doing this for them in a roundabout kind of way. Um, even if it, you know, he knows how much it has hurt them to leave. 
Um, and he has to have that very imposing figure for the version of Ed that the version of Hohenheim that Ed sees is just this harsh man who left them behind. And, and slowly Ed has to like learn that there's more to him. But I think you as the audience are able to really get much deeper access into the nuances of what's going on underneath that outer shell because of Isuzuka's performance. Um, and I'm like with you. I think it's it's just one of the best things in the anime in particular um, is everything with Hohenheim. I think throughout the whole show, it's been true. Um, but particularly because Hohenheim's deepest and like juiciest material is here right at the very end. Um, there's so much warmth and compassion underneath this very harsh and like very sort of like hurt exterior that he has like this like armor he's put up um this very kind of cool um but stern thing he's got going on but there's this beating heart of someone who who cares more about humanity than any other character we've ever met um i think he's really able to portray that and i don't know if and and that is uncho ishizuka that's him Mm -hmm. right like that is describing that of like having the gravitas and the harshness but then also you hear in it, oh, he cares. You know, this is the guy who could play Professor Oak and yes. Jet Black and just all these just, this is him, you know. Uh, and and there was something watching it yesterday in the, in the penultimate episode is his last set of scenes. Um, and it, it, it starts with, he talks to Alex Armstrong, who says, you know, we've got to thank you for those kids. They brought us all together. Which is true. That's Ed and Al's ultimate role in the series is kind of uniting all these factions. And and Hohenheim gets to hear that. And it's the thing that tells him he can go now, right? Mm-hmm. Like, my kids grew up into amazing people and they have all these other people waiting for them. They're going to be okay, right? And then he goes home and he goes back to Rizambul and he, he says his final lines before the grave of, of Trisha and he passes away. And I just, in a world where Unsho Shizuka has passed, you look at that, his last lines, and it's, I, I don't know how you keep a, a straight face. Mm-hmm. It's impossible not to tear up. It's such a beautiful scene. Yes, yeah. Uh, it's it, it's just a, it's a really powerful character. I think it really carries the sense of, like, you know, he, like, there, there is a, like, alternate universe version of Full Metal Alchemist that is a, a series that is made for an older audience. You know, you're, like, seinen manga thing which i don't love like using some of those labels too seriously because there's they're very diverse um but something that's like aimed at an adult audience that would have an adult protagonist rather than ed right um and that in that world van hohenheim is the hero of that story and like you saw the whole thing from his perspective um like there's there's something where he carries that weight where you feel yeah he's this is this man is like a legend like he's a hero like he is someone who has carried this burden and there is again there's some other world version of Fullmetal alchemist that is just his story because he yeah. carries that much of it with him um yeah it's it's phenomenal i also want to like briefly shout out when we're talking about van hohenheim because there you know you have the flashback in this section to xerxes um and he's not in it much but we do have a young van hohenheim that's played by namikawa daisuke um, which is a fun little piece of casting um, that again, he's only yes. in like half of that episode because as soon as he gets older, it's uh, uh, Utsui Suzuki again. But I think that Armiko Daisuke does a good job of like of playing in that box and like feeling like this very sort of like young, bright eyed version of the man who will grow up to be the brand we've met. Yes. They actually did something very fun there in the uh, English dub as well. They had young Hohenheim voiced by Aaron Dismuke who voiced 
Al in the original dub mm-hmm. of the 2003 show as an actual like 10 year old kid he was too old to play Al by the time Brotherhood came around because his voice had changed but he voices the young um, uh, Hohenheim and then he's since gone on to be a big dub actor he's the main character in um, Kagi. well he's not Kaguya-sama he's the other one um, the student council president student council president yeah I just think of yeah Kaicho-san yeah no, um, no he's the president in that show in, in the dub so he's become a big dub actor again but yes I think this was kind of his like I, I maybe even returned to um, adult voice acting um, as as the young Hohenheim, which was a cool little touch. Yes, so Hohenheim, yeah. great character. Two thumbs up. Yes, two thumbs up. Well, we love him. All right, um, so we have our big Neon Genesis Evangelion moment where... <laughs> father opens the door it really is when you see it animated it just so looks like this is the end of evangelion with fewer breasts uh yes. on display less misogyny in general but this very much looks like the end of evangelion where he's yeah, lifting up like, towards heaven it was crazy the end when ed and winry are on a beach and he just starts <laughs> choking her out until winry just says oh, you're disgusting and then it cuts to black i i really i don't know if i liked what ed did to winry in that hospital room sean Oh God! Oh Jesus! <laughs> that that that's an off limits reference for for this. We can't we can't for, go there. That's not a fun end of Evangelion joke. That's a gross for, one. For all the YouTube comments we get of like, what do you mean Evangelion is misogynistic? You guys are crazy. Just take Full Metal Alchemist and imagine those scenes with Ed and Winry, <laughs> and then tell me that same thing. Maybe play that as the little test in your head. Would that play as misogynistic if you did it with Ed and Winry? Yes, yes, it would. Because Winry is a real character and not a set of tits. Anyway. um, Okay. So (laughs) we do get our big Evangelion moment. Father claims God. uh, And then we have everything that comes after that. Uh, You know, it's a very good, crazy, striking set of scenes. You know, I think it doesn't have the same level of human drama as some of the stuff we've described with like Wrath and Scar. But it certainly works. And I think the way they then, you know, tie in Ed and Al... It's exactly, the, like, whatever the path, I do think Ed and Al get lost in the shuffle a little bit earlier in The Promised Day. This is the ending it had to be, right? Like, mm-hmm. it had to be Al. I, and I do love the overall build of, like, Al is losing contact with that metal body. And then by the end, his body is so falling apart, like, the the blood seal is almost broken as well. And so, like, mm-hmm. this is all he can do. Um, and he uses May helps him. It's one of the coolest uses of the alkahestry thing with like the the kunai she throws. Of Ed is impaled by rebar again, um, which happens to him. Yeah. And Al sacrifices his body to give Ed his arm back. Ed punches the shit out of Father. They win, and then Ed does human transmutation on himself to give up his gate of truth and bring Al back. That's the perfect ending. I do also. I have no confirmation of this. But I fully believe that the staff of the 2003 anime were told in broad strokes by Arakawa that the ending would involve something like this because they did it just in a different way. They did the Al sacrifices his body to get Ed back and then Ed sacrifices his body to get Al back. They just took it in a different direction. But I totally... There's also other little things like that, like Ed digging up his mother in the 2003 anime when it is the the thing he brought back in the in the manga but that hadn't happened in the manga yet that i wonder if arakawa gave them some like very broad notes that they just took in a different direction um i'm pretty sure she did uh because because yeah. another one is um like hohenheim being immortal that had not yes. been revealed yet in the manga at that point um but is obviously like that's the one that's the most specific like there is no way you would hit on that there's no reason no. you would think that 
um, and is too similar. Like, the body thing, I you know, it's entirely possible that that, because that feels like a thing that Arakawa would have thought of fairly early on. Um, but I also think that that's something you could arrive at fairly independently sure. because it's a pretty clear extension of the body stuff that has happened as like the core setup yeah. for the series. Um, but yes, I, she, cause she was definitely involved in a lot of the script writing meetings. She definitely gave them notes on things that happened yes. beyond what she wrote in the manga. So it is highly probable that that was an example of one of those things. But yeah, but I just, I think Fred and Al specifically, you're not going to do better than Al giving, I mean, one, I do like there's that earlier moment where Al almost goes back to his body and then he sees it's scrawny, it can't fight, yes. he, he can't, and so he affirmatively chooses to go back. Again, this show, other than with Roy Mustang, is very good at want versus need storytelling. And then he finally comes back, reunites with his body, and there's that great line about, like, do you think he'll be able to do it? I'm like, yes, he'll be able to do it. Um, and then Ed is racking his brain, racking his brain, how do I get Al back? He's offered a Philosopher's Stone. And denies it because Ed has learned things. Thank God. Again, learns things other... that other characters should have expressed after this point that we know about philosopher's yes. stones. But you know, Ed will continue to be the only person who seems to know it's kind of fucked up to use people's souls like it's you know a toy. You get uh, my favorite Romy Park line reading in the franchise, which is when Hohenheim offers his body as the last stone. Uh, and Ed lashes out, but in lashing out also expresses love towards his father for the first time in his life. Um, just stunning piece of voice acting. Yeah, yeah. The, the, Ed calls him Kso Oyeji, which uh, yes. it means like, you shitty dad, um, if you yeah. want to, because Kso literally means poop. So if I was if I was translating this, I would have thrown a shit in there. Um, that's, that's I thought you were going to say, I thought you were going to do it really literal. It would have been, you poop dad. <laughs> yeah. How yes. dare you ask me to use your your body, poop father? I would never do such a thing, is how I would have translated that in my subtitles. And then in the credits, it would have been father, and then poop father, played by Ushiro <laughs> no, Yes, exactly. Um, no, but beautiful line, and then he hits on the actual solution. He stands up. The Full Metal Alchemist is going to do his last transmutation, and then he gives up the Gate of Truth, and they come back to their bodies. Mwah. That's a platonic ideal of an ending. It's perfect. I don't think it's perfect. Um, I think there's more setup that could have been done. I think the idea is exactly what the idea needs to be. And I think I like it better in the anime than the manga, partially because like the vocal performance is so good. And I think it hits such a good kind of like jubilant tone that's able to work through some of this. But I do wish that there was something with Ed. I want to make it clear. I think in general, this ending is really good. Um, and this is, this is more kind of nitpicking to like, I think where you could have pushed it to be better is make it feel like this is a thing that Ed would never, it, that Ed would have never been able to do at an earlier point in the series. Because it feels a little bit like a technicality that he is like, that it's like, oh, it never occurred to me that one could do this. More so than it's like, I would have never been able to, to let go of my ability to do alchemy before this point. Because it really feels to me like he would have done this like 50 episodes ago if the idea had occurred to him that it was technically possible to sacrifice your ability to do alchemy to help al like ed has it has been such a long time since it felt like ed was a character who was defined and like perceived himself as a person who was defined by his by him being an alchemist and his ability to perform alchemy was like a key part of who he was and that he needs to learn to let go of that i think that that was is kind of there but i don't think it's as like clear a thread as i wish it was to 
really have that land home. Because when I read the manga, it was a thing where I, I got to that scene. I was like, this is the right idea. But I didn't really feel the emotional impact of it because I don't think all the buildup is there for it to fully land. That's fair. And maybe I will back off perfect platonic ideal of an ending. It's, it's still, it's no matter what, it's very, very good, as you said. Yeah. Um, I think, I, I guess what it just has, it's always worked for me. And I first saw it in the anime. So even reading the manga, I have the jubilant Romy Park and the music and all of that in my head. Mm -hmm. Which, because also Romy Park is playing Truth in all those scenes. Yes. Um, and the way Truth, like, congratulates Ed, it's such a great line reading from mm -hmm. her as well. Um, I, I think that's, so that's always been in my head. And I think that's always been it. Because I think there's something about him being just freed and unshackled from this and there being something like actually kind of happy about what he's giving up that I think is really interesting. Um, and I think the idea that he had to, even if he on a technicality could have done this at the beginning, he had to go on the journey to realize it, I think makes sense. I think you're probably right that you probably could have seeded it more clearly in certain moments. And maybe this is where if Ed had something more specific to do in the promised yes. day, instead of fighting zombies until it's time to fight father, you could have improved this. That is absolutely true. Yeah. Cause I think that's what it is for me. I think like there needed to be a sub villain, whether it was pride or Kimberly or someone that like pushed this element of Ed, if the ending is going to be, and again, I think this is the right idea for the ending is that he has to give up alchemy in order for him to move forward, which this is like, you know, this is one of your standard set of fantasy style genre endings is that you must learn to let go of the fantasy thing in order for you to grow up because that is that is what it is to grow up is to leave the fantasy behind. Um, and so this, it's, you know, this is a well-worn plot type. And so it's the right idea. It's the right thing. But you need to build it up more. Um, and I think if he had had a villain pairing with someone and you had a plot arc in there that pushed this button more and made it feel more like, oh, that, because I agree with like, you know, he had to go on the journey to realize it is technically true, but it doesn't, it's so removed from anything specific he's done. Like, I think a very good example of this kind of ending being done excellently is Return of the Jedi um, and Luke throwing the lightsaber away, right? If he beats Darth Vader and him decided, realizing the thing I have to do is put my weapon down. That is a thing that Luke Skywalker would have never been able to do before that point. We have seen him as a young man in his fantasies of being a hero. We have seen him in Empire Strikes Back in his cocksure, arrogant, I'm going to go off, I'm going to save the day, I'm going to get my laser sword, I'm going to fight, I'm going to be a fucking Jedi. We have seen him live that fantasy and indulge in that need for power. And it's we have seen him then go through what he has lost and paid for because of it, and him coming to a point of realizing a thing that even the people who trained him never realized, which is at the end of the day, the path of the Jedi, like the thing I need to do is to throw my arms away and to fight with compassion and understanding. And that's a thing that he needs to, that he very directly needs to have gone on this journey because that lesson he's learned is very directly tied to everything he has done and all the mistakes and all the prices he's paid along the way. And I don't feel like that connection is very tight here in Full Metal Alchemist. I think it is there in a broad conceptual sense. But it is hard for me to point to specific moments in the story along the way where it felt like if Ed could see the bigger picture of like what alchemy really is and like and what it has done to him, what he, how he identifies himself with it, he would be able to solve this problem. And if he had just done it earlier, like 
if he if he could like if he could do this he would have solved this problem but he needs to make these mistakes to learn it i just don't really feel that that strongly with this story that's fair um and i'm curious what other people think about this it as you say it plays well either way but i think you're right that it could play even stronger yeah, um, and in, and I want to again emphasize that I do think it plays much stronger in the anime because the production stuff creates a tone where it feels near comic almost in a way that like I think helps that to a certain point. I think it doesn't. It, I still would prefer the thing that has all the build up to where I feel like a strong emotional punch there, but there is a like momentum to it in the anime that I don't think the the equivalent moment in the manga quite has. Yeah. Um, I think also the anime being able to build episodes around these things near the yes. end helps like mm-hmm. because the manga I mean that last chapter is a, a big big fucking chapter mm-hmm. and chapter breaks are different than episode breaks so I don't know if it would make a difference but there's still something where I feel like I, I, I think she had to have it be long because otherwise you would have had to wait a month for what's essentially the epilogue of the series the way that would have broken in the manga and mm-hmm. I understand not wanting to do that as a mangaka. But in the in the anime, I think they're helped by having the penultimate episode as the climax, and the finale is essentially a return of the king ending. Um, yes. it's a series of goodbyes and farewells, and I think a, a beautiful set. I really like the final episode. I've yeah. always loved the the epilogue of this show. It's it's so good. The epilogue is amazing. It's it's one of the best episodes in the whole show. Like I think it's better than the episode that precedes it. Like I think it's like a better ending. Really, um, it's even better than the manga i mean is able to do more right it's a bigger you know it's it is a full episode for what is not a full episode's worth of pages so that's where they get to do things like you know it gives them the space to do a much better version of that mustang scene because that mustang scene in the manga is like a page and a half like it's it's super it's four short. pages exactly because i was able to post oh. it on twitter in four pictures okay so but it's very yeah. quick right it's like yes. you're in you're out because you have everything else to get to it's very fast um, whereas the anime gets to sort of spend more time on a lot of these individual beats, even if almost every single individual beat is, is there is an equivalent moment in the manga. They're not like inventing a lot of beats wholesale. Probably like the biggest one is the is Winry's whole scene. Yes. It's much yes. longer. Like there's a huge amount of buildup, which is very powerful. And there's so much kind of weight to this moment of them coming home. So this last episode just gets to really luxuriate in the feeling of, the fight is over what happens to everybody and this is my favorite kind of ending for a tv show this is what i want yes. for every long-running tv show that is in this like 50 plus episodes range um something in here like four cores or more you need to have like at least an entire episode dedicated to what happens after the main action because like you need to allow your audience to really unpack a lot of those ideas is is what i i always want and i think this episode is a like classically perfect example of that it's one of the best examples of like an epilogue episode i've seen um it's it's amazing like again i like it more than the the episode 63 like i like it more than the fight against father i like it as an ending more than anything else in the ending i guess basically in the same way, my favorite parts of Return of the King aren't when the ring goes in the fire. It's when right. they come home, you know? Mm-hmm. It's it's all of that stuff. It's you bow to no one, my friends, right? Yes. Um, and this is where we get that kind of stuff. Because you also get Scar's final scene, which I think is really beautifully done. Um, and yeah, when they come home and see Winry in the, in the manga, it's really nicely done. But it's just Winry 
comes out and they meet and they have their and there's a big like splash page it's really beautifully drawn but the way they do it where Winry is at home and then she walks past all the pictures on the wall which is a direct setup for the final scene they're going to do yes and she walks past all the pictures and you have this big choral piece by Akira Senju which we've used before but has been used almost in like mournful tragic scenes like I think it's in the Ishval flashback episode mm-hmm. Um, and instead we get a full use of it here for her coming out and seeing Ed and Al, Al in his body, Ed with his arm walking down the, the way and, and they have the dog comes up and is jumping on Ed and everyone's okay. That to me feels like the scene where Frodo is in Rivendell and everyone comes in and jumps on his bed. It's so beautiful as like a, we're all together again. You know, yeah, like one really well done detail there is, um, I mean, there's actually two really good ones here with Winry, but one, the first one is what triggers this is not just her hearing Al's voice, but Al specifically says, like, stop it, Din, Din being the dog, like that tickles, and yes. that is a thing, like, like it is, is Al expressing something about a physical sensation he feels, which is something we have never heard that character say, something like that for the whole series because he has never been able to feel things for other than in the flashbacks when he was like a little kid and had his body. So that's like the thing that triggers it is, is that at that moment, she doesn't just know that they're home. She knows that they've done it. Um, and so you get the long walk, long, slow walk to the door. And then before she opens the door, there's a nice profile shot on Winry's head and you see the piercings, like the holes in her ear where the piercings go, but she, but they're the piercings she gave to Ed which there's no actual moment where you see Ed give her the piercings back, but like that lingering on that gives you a moment to see that and feel this like rush of emotions of like they're returned and it's like it's the end and like we're home again. Um, it's really powerful and, and all of that is all stuff original to the anime. Like none of that is in the scene in the manga um, and it's really, really clever, smartly constructed stuff. Like it feels like I imagine that they worked a lot on thinking about how to do that scene uh, because it feels like there's so much detail put into the sequencing and how it's put together. This is what I mean when I say it just feels like the staff is having fun with this. Like they're actively imagining how do we make the best version of this scene. And I do also wonder if not having finished manga pages just frees them like the storyboard Mm -hmm. can be whatever the fuck you want it to be. Like within reason, within the plot, but like they weren't storyboarding based off finished manga pages. So, you know, they, they had more freedom and it's really, really cool. Um, and they also, it's just so well structured as an episode because they do the act break there. And then after the act break, it's two years later. And we have Al going off with uh, his Chimera friends. Yes. And I love that. That's also a scene that is expanded. It's a little longer than what is in the manga. Um, there's a little more humor in it. You get the whole thing about Gerso and Zampano want to get their bodies back. Um, and so they're, they're inspired that they're going to keep working on this. And Al is going to head off to Jing and and probably go marry Mei Chang because you know we sh- they, they need to be together. You know, it's, and, it's it's a happy ending, so everyone has to get yes. married, even if it's just yes. through broad implication. Yes. So he's going to go to Jing, and Ed is going to go out west, um, and they're going to learn what they can, and then come back together. And then we end on Ed and Winry at the train station, which with what is certainly a contender for the most like effectively romantic scene in the history of shonen anime <laughs> sure yeah it's so yeah. it's mm-hmm. so fucking good i've always loved it it's still so good it's such 
it hits that sweet spot of it is still the dumb headstrong kid ed was with the adult he has become it's the person we saw but also their growth in the moment of him invoking equivalent exchange and her playing with it and them admitting their love and then ed pulling him her in for that hung and saying you made you made my day you made me happy uh you know it's an it's a very very iconic scene from full metal alchemist and for good reason yeah, it's very good. I, I particularly like in the anime because, again, they just have a lot more time because they gave this whole, all this stuff an entire episode that they just allow all this stuff to breathe. So I love all the moments leading up to it where you see how physically uncomfortable Ed is because you know yes. that he's going over in his head this stupid fucking thing he's about to say to her. <laughs> being like, oh, God, I can't think of anything better to say. Am I really going to do this? And, and like... I just like all the buildup for that scene um, and the, the dumb shit that they say to each other. Um, it's very good. Yeah. Um, one moment here amongst all this that I want to shout out just for like, you know, we're saying a lot of stuff that like the anime is able to do some of this stuff better than the manga. One thing that the manga gets um, that the anime, there's no way the anime would be able to do this shot. Um, and, and so they do like they do it technically, but they don't put the weight on it. But maybe my favorite panel in the whole manga is right here near the end it's right when the time jump happens and it's ed on the roof and he stands up and he looks at the horizon and you have this incredible two-page spread that is split where the first the top two-thirds of the image the two-page spread me it's spread across the full length of both pages the top two-thirds is just the horizon and then the bottle the bottom third is a reverse shot looking at ed's face and him looking out at this horizon of like the endless open possibilities, especially after the like the incredibly claustrophobic feel of everything that came before in the city and in the underground and amongst the rubble and the violence of the city and all the you know scenes with Roy Mustang and all that stuff in the manga take place in the immediate aftermath of that battle. So you're still in this like very tense, tightly paneled section, and then cutting to this future to peaceful timeline. Um, two years later and getting this wide open natural expanse it's an incredible use of paneling um in a manga and there is absolutely no way the anime would be able to replicate that effect unless it was in like a super widescreen aspect ratio like there's no way you could in 69 i think even get the impact of that very panoramic style shot um so again they they technically have that moment but they focus more on the sequence immediately after that where al comes up and is Ed and al talking whereas the weight of that scene is very much on that two-page spread in the manga so i want to shout out you know we shouldn't let us ourselves forget how fucking good atakawa is as a mangaka and how incredible her art and paneling is because it is so good um that is one area where she definitely has a clear leg up on 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 the anime and an equivalent scene Oh, absolutely. There's, there's, she is such a master of the basics of this stuff and, and the advanced elements too. Like I've talked a lot about how much I love her lighting and just mm -hmm. the kind of noirish feel the manga has. And these are also things that just, I can't really imagine any anime done in color replicating, you know? Yeah. And I think you're right. Like that is a literal wide screen, like almost like a mural effect that Arakawa mm -hmm. is using. You just unless you were going to do an aspect ratio shift and you couldn't really because you would have to have a shift where it actually widens and the only way you can do it on a 16 by 9 screen is to letterbox it so it wouldn't feel the same yes you know um and it's still it's still a beautiful i think they get the core of that scene from a dialogue perspective and everything and it's still very lovely um but yeah it's just you know mangas do some things better and anime do some other things better well, that's okay yes. But I just wanted to shout out that page because if you were to ask me what is my favorite page, or I guess technically this is, this is two pages, 
Um, but what is my favorite from the manga? That is it. That is my answer. Yeah. But, you know, I, I think it speaks to what a strong character Winry is, how good Arakawa is writing men and women and actually doing romance that, like... I can't name another shonen thing I've read where I would be comfortable with the final scene being a statement of love between two main characters. Mm-hmm. And Full Metal Alchemist can do it. You know, there's yeah. just not a lot that can do it. And uh, it does it beautifully. And then, of course, the 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 manga has uh, a page where it, it has some of the pictures you see in the end of the anime. And it has Ed's final monologue about getting a Full Metal Heart. Um, what they do here is they have Ed's final line about the Full Metal Heart and then they kick into Hologram. The second theme song comes on because it's the most joyous of the songs. Yes. Um, and you have it and then you have all of the pictures of, of everyone in the future uh, leading up to our, our family photo where Ed and Winry clearly have had a couple of kids. And Al, Al and May are there. You can imagine what you will with Al and May. And they're all having fun and, and it's a good ending um, and it's great. Yeah, it's really good. And then the actual, the very last shot, and this is the same thing as his last image in the manga as well, is a tall picture of Ed from when he leaves at that train station looking back at presumably Winry and smiling. Yes. Um, but something that I don't think I picked up on this when I read the manga, because I think it's much more clear when you have the coloring of the anime, is that he's meant to look like Hohenheim because he's wearing the same outfit that Hohenheim is wearing. Um, I think that I it didn't occur to me because I didn't you know it's, Hohenheim is that like very distinctive very dark brown overcoat with the black vest white shirt underneath it and black pants and that's what Ed's wearing there. Um, he's got the longer hair and stuff that makes him look more like young Hohenheim. Um, and I thought that was like oh again I think that is exactly what the manga is doing. I just didn't pick up on it, but it's a very nice little beat to end to show. You know, because a part of the ending is Ed realizing that his father was not the scumbag that he was. Um, and that's like part of Ed's character growth in the end. So then building that connection of that he's going on a journey similar to the kind of thing that Hohenheim did. And obviously Al is doing the same thing um, around the world where Hohenheim in the past brought alchemy to the east and all that kind of stuff. But it's, it's a really nice beat to leave you on is seeing that image of and growing up to be the same kind of hero that his father, that we now know his father truly was. Absolutely. And it also just has always struck me as like, for Arakawa as an author, what, what do you want your final page to be? It's your hero smiling back at you. There's yeah. just something about that that's like, it's a very lovely goodbye to the series, you know? Yeah. If only and we it, could have done the full proper Lord of the Rings ending and when they came home to Reason Bull... Kimberly was there and he was fucking shit up and they had to fight Kimberly one more time like he was Saruman in, in Return of the King. That would be very interesting. Or or really, I think that would have been, that was in the manga and the anime just didn't have time for it. Exactly, you know? yeah. They just cut it yeah. out. Yeah. Indeed, the scouring of the Risen Bull. <laughs> yes. So, Sean, we forgot to talk about the theme songs last time, so we have ten of these suckers to go over. I don't think we all... forgot. I think it was that I saw how long that episode ran. And I was like, I'm not going to bring it up. <laughs> okay, that's fine. Uh, but we got to do it because this show, like its predecessor, has just straight bangers all the way through. Yes. This is such a fucking great set of themes. Starting with Again by Yui and Uso by Sid, which are phenomenal. I think Again yes. is just... The, you know, the first core of Brotherhood is the weakest core of Brotherhood, but again, is such a kick-ass theme song. Its lyrics are so self-aware to what the project of Brotherhood is. Uh-huh. Uh, the visuals are so cool. I've always loved that song. The edit of that song 
uh, they edit it differently than the full track, and it's really it makes for just such an impactful start to it. Uh, it uh, kicks ass. I love it. Yeah, it's it's phenomenal. Um, I like it for me personally. I think either again or um, period are probably my two favorite. I mean, they're all really good. Um, yeah. But I've I've been I've listened to again for a long time, well before Brotherhood, because Yui did one of my favorite openings for Bleach. Um, so I've listened to a lot of that band's music. Um, it's phenomenal. Uso is a good, really good example. Uso, uh, the Sid song, that's the first ending, is a good example that reminds me of um, that one ending theme from Gundam Age, where it's like this. This should have been one of the opening themes. Like this, it's so not to say it's like bad as an ending theme, but it's so good and it's very pretty up tempo. It is pretty like yeah. you know, it's a pretty driving song. Um, that every time I got to the end of an episode, I would forget. Did it start playing the next episode and this is the opening theme or am I at the end? Oh, right, right. This is the ending theme of the song because it's like you usually get a much lower tempo, kind of sadder, like more, you know, kind of slow song. Um, but Uso, that song kicks ass. It kicks ass. I love the visuals for Uso too, which is mm-hmm. all the like child's crayon drawings of Ed and Al's yes. adventures. And then it ends with kid Ed and Al drawing chalk on the sidewalk. It's really cute. Uh, so the second set is Hologram by Nico Touches the Walls and Let It Out by Miho, uh, Miho Fukuhara. Uh, Hologram was definitely the biggest hit to come out of this at the time. People loved it, I just remember when it aired. It's my least favorite of the five, mm-hmm. but it's still fucking great. And there's a good reason they used it at the very end, because it is just joyous in a way that I think works. I honestly like its use at the very end of the show better than I do as a theme song. I agree, but, yeah. Yeah, I like Hologram fine as a song. It is the one that stood out to me the least um amongst the opening themes but it 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 is one that like works really well as that like because i couldn't even remember which one of the openings it was when it played at the end but i was like yeah yeah this is a full metal alchemist brotherhood song this is good um so yeah yeah and then you have let it out uh which just they do the thing a couple of times with let it out where it comes in before the ending Mm -hmm. the most memorably when ed is coming back through the gate to tell al's body he's coming for it and uh, I love Let It Out. It's always been one of my favorites. And just the let it all out. Just the whole thing. It's great. Yeah. It's crooning. It's beautiful. Great song. Uh, the third opening theme uh, is Golden Time Lover by Schema Switch, which is fun because I've seen uh, Gin no Saji or uh, Silver Spoon, the other anime based on a Arakawa manga. And Schema Switch has a very good uh, song in that anime as well. So it's, there's, it's the Arakawa anime adaptation. You got to get it in there. Uh, Schema Switch, great band, Golden Time Lover, great song. Yep, absolutely. The singer for Schema Switch sings a song on one of the... Um, why am I forgetting the name of one of my favorite composers right now? But the uh, guy does Attack on Titan, and he did all the Gundam the Hiroyuki that we love. Sawano? Yeah, here, he does a Hiroyuki Sawano song called Never Gonna Change that I love. Uh-huh. Um, that's a kick-ass song. But anyway, I've always loved Golden Time Lover. It's the weirdest and most different of the mm-hmm. openings. Um, I love the animation. I love it. it. Starts with Ed in the field with his arm outstretched, and like it really expresses the frustration of the characters at this point in the series. Um, the this is also one where you, if you have only heard the ninety second cut, you got to hear the full thing because the vocals mm-hmm. are just crazy on that song. Yeah. Then you have Sunida Tay by Lil B. Love that name. And Sunida Tay is awesome. This is our Winry ending song. This is our Winry right, fan service yes. song. And uh, it's great. It's just, it's got, uh, there's a little bit of a rap break, I think, in the 90 second cut, but in the full song, you've got more of it. But I've always loved Sunida Tay. I love that, that glimpse at like Winry's life over in uh, Rush Valley. And it's just really cute. And it's a great song. Yes. Yeah. I, w- I would be disappointed if there was a song by an artist called Little B and there was not a rap breakdown somewhere in the song. Oh, of, of course. Yeah. 
The fourth set just slays. It's Period yes. by Chemistry and Shinkan Sentimental by Scandal. Uh, period just is... How can you get into an episode starting with Period and not be hyped as shit? It's so good. It's it's just... It's such a big feeling song. And the main thing it reminded me of is it sounds so much like a song from Digimon Adventure called Braveheart, which is a song that plays whenever the Digimon digivolves. Um, there's just something, it's got the exact same energy where it's just like, it. there's so much buildup and it's so big feeling. And it's just like, every time you listen to it, it just feels very inspiring. Um, and it's, yeah, it's it's period by chemistry. Again, it's either that or again by Yui or my favorite openings. Um, it's, it's fucking great. It's a great song. Great song. And Shinkan Sentimental kicks ass mm-hmm. too. And the way it is used, because they really start going heavily with having yes. Shinkan Sentimental come in early before the end credits start. And there's just so many great fucking moments that are built off of that. Um, it's amazing. I love it so much. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Our last set is Rain by Sid and Ray of Light by Shoko Nakagawa. Rain is my personal favorite of these five openings. And I wouldn't have said that in the past. It's just something about it hit me this time. And I think it is... One, I'd been listening on my playlist and everything for years to the full five-minute album version of Rain, and the cut for the anime is extremely different. They not only move around verses and stuff, which is pretty common for anime openings, but they literally, the sort of driving guitar lick, this is a much more hard rock song in its full album version, and the big driving guitar lick is just cut from this hmm. edit of rain and it is much more focused on the vocals and the and the the verses and it even ends with this with sid like warbling vocals at the end over just echoing whereas in the song that's over the big guitar lick um and i think it's so moody and then you put it over i love the animation of it's this very kind of like melancholy look at all of the characters being connected by the rain, which of course has this extra significance because of the famous line in the first half of the series with Mustang at Hughes's funeral. Um, it's just, I, I'm always kind of in awe of this one when I would watch it through these final sets of episodes. It's just a great little 90 second bit of audiovisual storytelling. Um, and it's my new favorite. I love it. Yeah, it's really good. I have not listened to the full version of the song yet, so I'll need to check that out because that's interesting that it's that different because usually that only happens, I feel like, with ending themes. I mean, obviously, the 90-second cut is always a little bit different, um, but it's usually not like... It's usually not the instrumentation. It's usually like, oh, we cut out half of the opening of the song or we cut out this bridge and just stuck the chorus onto the verse or something like that to tighten it to a 90-second version. Um, I think so. you'll be surprised because when you go into it, like it literally starts with this big, it's a dun 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 and it's like this big guitar thing between the verses. They've cut all of that. They've simplified instrumentation and points. Um, they must have worked pretty closely to like get it into this shape because like period is much more the standard thing where literally there's just kind of a harsh fade at the end because yes. what it does is it just goes into the next verse. Uh, in the full version of the song Rain is just It's honestly I consider the album version And the TV cut Two different songs They're so different Yeah One great use of Rain In the show Is the episode After the After Father has Gone full Eva And has sucked out Everybody's souls And then the <laughs> yes. Subsequent episode it, it starts without the opening And there's this long build up To revealing that like Oh we actually have You know that plan in place That's going to put Everybody's souls back And then once everyone Starts waking up again rain starts playing and it's fucking it's, it's so good uh it's, it's, it's so good it's such a powerful they, moment they also use it at the end of episode 63 when hohenheim yes. dies 
And if you're not crying already, it'll make you cry. It's so good. Yeah, it's yeah, it, yeah it's a they they get some really effective uses of that song within the episodes in that last core, which is usually true when you get to the last core because that's where you're really trying to milk every single minute of runtime you possibly have to make sure you're getting everything in. So you gotta like figure out what you're doing with your openings, and they they did some really good stuff with that song. Yes, and then Ray of Light by Shoko Nakagawa. Yes. Um, this was her moment where she was getting really big. I remember because I'd seen <laughs> this was like right yeah, around she's the, in a, a couple lot years of stuff. A lot of stuff. She had a. This was a couple years after this. She had a much hyped cameo in Dragon Ball Z: Battle of Gods as the little fish oracle on Beerus's planet, and that's her only thing. But in <laughs> Japanese press, it was really hyped. But anyway, Ray of Light is an amazing fucking song. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the big like it has this big swell of instrumentation at the beginning, and when they bring that in at the end of episodes, like again, just you know, you you just feel the impact of things. Yeah, it's it's yeah. it's just like across the board. This is one of the best sets, um, and it's very true of the previous show as well. Um, you know, Full Metal Alchemist got some really good, really good opening and ending themes. But I think, in particular, yeah. I do like the second half of this show does it much more frequently of finding ways to integrate some of those pieces of the songs into the actual episodes, which is always what you're looking yes. for. That's that next. That's that next level opening ending theme shit. Once you find a way to get that like opening lick in right at the end of the episode over the action or something, um, which they do quite a bit with Ray of Light. Uh, it's yeah. good stuff. I think of it now as the Gundam Seed thing because that is uh-huh. the most stylish thing Gundam Seed brought to the world. Was that? Yes, definitely. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that is Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood. I will say, seeing it again, seeing how strong it closes. All of the theme songs, all that kind of stuff. You know, I feel a little bit bad for how much we maybe got down on the people who say this is their favorite anime. I get it. I'm not going to, you know, I don't think it's the best one ever made. I kind of get it. I still don't really get it, honestly. Um, But... I, well, I get it, you know, if you were, like, look, again, I just, I, I'm a 29-year-old man watching it, so that is that is going to inevitably be part of the thing of, like, if you grew up with this, I can see how it would hit you at that moment, the way that, for me, it would be Dragon Ball or Yu Yu Hakusho, and if you're, like, 30 or something, and you watch Dragon Ball for the first time, you're probably not going to see this, get, have the same emotional, like, attachment to it as I'm going to have, um, but, like, Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood is very good, is it the best anime ever made? No. It's not, and and I think that would be kind of, uh, I think it's silly to say that, but again, if someone says it's their favorite anime, I, I don't know. Sure. I look at the high points of it, and I'm like, that's not a ridiculous thing to say. I don't think I said it was ridiculous last time, if you say your, your favorite. I do think if you're IGN and you put out a list of the 25 yes. best anime ever made, and it's at the top of your list, and oh no, there's no show made before the year 2000 on our list. Um, that's stupid as shit. Um, but yeah, I, you know... Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood is beloved for a reason. It is yes. a good show. It's a very good show. Um, and again, like I think if it's your favorite show, I can totally get that. Um, you know, nobody can take that away from you. But it's yeah. It's but it is the it's it's silly to call it the best anime ever made. Um, it's just like I think that that's it's just not like and that's not almost nothing is or arguably nothing is really depending on how you define those kinds of things. Mobile Suit Gundam from 1979 is the best anime ever made. That's yes. the answer. At the very least, at the very least, Mobile Suit Gundam um, is certainly in that conversation. Um, and it's like, and I, I you know, I, it's one of those things where I feel bad for Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood that it is, it is saddled with this weird reputation, specifically in America. Because, again, to be clear, 
it's 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 i mean it might be i don't know maybe the uk does it too i can't speak to that but certainly like in america it is a particular thing where for some reason this show has been saddled with that specific reputation um it is not a thing i have seen expressed in japan as a common opinion i'm sure there, there are people that feel that but it's not like a cultural Here's... thing that people have decided this is one of if not the best anime ever made to the point where again a publication like ign a week or two ago put out an updated version of their best anime ever list and full metal alchemist brotherhood was their number one here's here's why i think it happens it one it is genuinely a very good show two it is a relatively short anime that does not have the kind of anime bullshit that is going to alienate a lot of people sure and so it is an extremely accessible anime that i think of anime of this general length a lot of people, maybe the most number of people, have seen in the West. It is very easy to get in on in that way. It also happens to have a very good, well-done dub. It's just a very accessible show. And so I think, like, so for instance, it also is at the top of, like, the My Anime List charts. Yes. And I'm like, of course it's at the top of the My Anime List charts. Everybody has seen it, and everybody at least likes it. Of course it's there. It's the same reason why Shawshank Redemption is number one on IMDb. Exactly. Everybody has seen it, and no one walks... I don't particularly love Shawshank Redemption, but I'm not going to go out and say that movie sucked. It's obviously a good movie, right? Yes. Like, same with this. So, that's why. Although... Coming up in the, on the rear, I've, I've opened up my anime list because I use that for a lot of the voice actor stuff I look up. Uh, number two right now is season three of Kaguya-sama, um, which is at That's a 9.11, which, like, you know, it's one of those weird things with how, like, you count different anime and stuff like that. That's like, oh, I guess, yeah, okay, sure, it's it's only season three. Um, I, I, I think this would be, this is, I've... I say this knowing this is an incredibly stupid comparison, and there is no reason to compare these two. I personally like Kaigasama season three more than Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood. That... I, I do too, but that is a dumb comparison. <laughs> yes, it's incredibly dumb, but it's the reason why a website like My Anime List is kind of dumb when you take your big cumulative scores. Of that, I don't yes. that they they picked apparently Kaigasama the season three to be your number two anime for right now. If you want to go off of My Anime List. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. That The big thing with Brotherhood is it's very accessible. I think the, it, having a really well-regarded dub is a really big factor. Um, it was a show that lots of people watched, that was easy to watch, that is broadly likable. Um, it doesn't do anything stylistically extreme or experimental. It's not a particularly like director-driven style show. It doesn't have a really strong authorial perspective as an anime. It obviously has an authorial perspective through its adaptation of Arakawa, who has a very strong authorial perspective. Um, but the anime itself, if you're looking at it as a product of animation, is pretty standard in that regard. It's not bad. Like, it's often frequently very well done. But if you compare it to, like, even just something like Neon Genesis Evangelion, there's a very big difference there between, like, the style of direction and the approach to making an anime between those different kinds of products. But Eva, while obviously still very well-beloved in the West, is also far more alienating, as evidenced by the fact that neither of us particularly love the TV version of Eva, at the very least, even if we like the, the movies a lot. Um, so it's like, it's it's clear why it's like an easy number one to put, but it also is like, I would urge anybody who is like, not saying it's their favorite, if you're saying it's your favorite, that's fine. Um, but if you're like trying to hold this up as like, this is one of the best anime ever made, Maybe expand your horizons a little bit because that, to me, like that list, shows a, maybe a lack of curiosity into the breadth of what anime has to deliver to you as an experience. If this is the thing that you think is the best, 
there's a lot out there that is doing stuff that Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood, by the nature of what it is, is not able to sort of like do. Like Ham Taro. Like Ham Taro or Sergeant Frog. Uh, Sergeant Frog's very good. Um, you could watch announcing Squid the Girl. next topic on Japanimation Station. It's Ham Taro time. No, I thought we were going to do Hello Kitty. Um, <laughs> How many Hello Kitty things would there be to review? I feel like that would be never ending. Uh, I don't know. I think it's like a thousand OVAs. I've typed Hello Kitty into my anime list, and yes, there are like a million different random OVAs made throughout the course of human history that have Hello Kitty in it. So, okay, let's be serious for a second. The next episode of Japanimation Station, which will also be the season one finale, will be our Full Metal Alchemist wrap up. We're going to finish all Full Metal Alchemist family business because there is a movie from Brotherhood called The Sacred Star of Milios. I'm warning you right now, it's fucking terrible. Watch it at your own risk, but we're going to review it. It'll take about 10 minutes to talk about because there's no substance to it. And we are also going to look at the live action movies, which recently uh, released the final parts on Netflix globally. So you can all see them very easily. There are three live action films, a big trilogy, and we're going to see how did they do translating Full Metal Alchemist to live action in three feature length movies. So we've got four movies, three live, one animated to talk about in the season finale of Japanimation Station. I'm very excited. Uh, you know, I you know I don't have a lot of expectations for the the Brotherhood film because I've heard bad stuff, but I've heard nobody say anything about the live action ones. You know, I think that probably tells you that I haven't heard it ever mentioned by anyone ever. Um, so I have I'm going in with an open heart. I have seen some live action anime adaptations that were good. I've also seen some that were not, and we will find out which one those are. But right now, Jonathan, the most pressing issue is I'm looking at my anime list, and apparently there's a forum topic that asks, why do people say Hello Kitty is racist? And this is a question I'm going to have to answer for myself. <laughs>